In the depths of the Roaring Twenties, a quiet coastal town clings to the edge of the Massachusetts coast, shrouded in ominous tales and whispered rumours. Welcome to Innsmouth, a place veiled in shadows and secrets, where the line between sanity and madness is as fragile as the crumbling cliffs that overlook the churning sea. Once a bustling fishing community, Innsmouth languishes in decay, its dilapidated buildings bearing witness to the passage of time and the eerie transformation that has taken hold. But behind the worn facades, the ever-present fog, a darker truth lurks, a truth that defies human comprehension and threatens to unleash unspeakable horrors upon an unsuspecting world. This is 1928, Fall of Innsmouth, a campaign of psychological and eldritch horror using the Call of Cthulhu 7th edition rules by Chaosium, and based on the stories of H.P. Lovecraft. The Call of Cthulhu role-playing game is written by Sandy Peterson with later revisions by Lynn Willis. The 7th edition is a collaboration between Paul Fricker and Mike Mason. Music used in this podcast is by Vivek Abhishek, Kevin McLeod and Ghoulish Grin Films. No, Ma, no, 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 don't do that. You and Dad need the money. It's Easter. You got Becky and Stu coming up from Atlanta. Dad's got to get that work done on the Oldsmobile. Ma, no. St. John's is fine. We got a couple of kids who did real well for themselves. Whenever St. John's needs something, I just got to let them know. You can keep that money. If the Lord didn't want you to keep it, he wouldn't have had you win. Ma, ma, look. Look, I gotta go. I gotta... I love you. I'll see you in a couple weeks. Father Brennan Mulligan of St. John the Dwarf's Home for Children finally hung up the phone. He smiled and sighed as he thought of his mother. She'd be just a few miles away. Most likely she was using the phone at the Patterson Deli. They sliced the pastrami there so thin, it's almost transparent. Father Mulligan looked around his office was both very tiny and very cluttered. His desk was up against the southwest wall. The fact that it was an old kitchen table was concealed by it having enough trays, ledgers, and correspondence to intimidate even the most stalwart accountant. The door was to his back. On his right was the window. Getting to the windows to pull the drapes aside involved a certain amount of climbing. There were boxes from the floor to the ceiling. There were half a dozen old, rolled-up Turkish carpets against one wall. They were musty, but they'd fetch a great price on the next orphanage fundraiser. There were dozens of hat boxes piled on top of each other. Father Mulligan couldn't remember what was in the hat boxes. He just hoped it wasn't food. A cool draught from the door being briefly opened gave Father Brennan a moment's warning. Father Mulligan! said a somewhat high-pitched, New Jersey-laden voice. What have I told you about sitting with your back to the door? It ain't safe. Brennan's voice caught in his throat. His pulse raced. His ruddy complexion started to show a sheen of sweat forming. Alfredo was here. Shuddering, Brennan turned slowly and looked at his guest. 
Ah, Alfredo. Brennan swiveled his chair around. The tiny mob hitman was standing there, almost nonchalantly, dressed in his usual grey pinstripe suit and beautifully paired fedora, and at his side, as always, was his violin case. Brennan unconsciously gulped. I'm sorry, Alfredo, I wasn't planning on holding any more confessions today. Hey, that's okay, I ain't here for the confession. Alfredo set down his violin case and took off his suit jacket. Brennan cursed under his breath as Alfredo continued. I'm here to do some uh, mortification of the flesh. Oh, and to tell you how I got shipwrecked in Massachusetts, uh, up near Innsmouth. Undoing his suspenders, then taking off his shirt... The tiny man was acting as though the two of them were engaged in a pleasant chat. The experience would be anything but pleasant for Father Brennan Mulligan, and all that he could do was sit and watch, and then clean up the blood afterwards. With his shirt off, the violin set neatly out of the way, Alfredo pulled a small mortification whip from out of his neatly folded pile of belongings. Brennan's eyes widened in surprise. There was something new on Alfredo's chest, in clear, exquisitely illuminated lettering. Altio Deus. Brennan cursed again. Hey, father, you're supposed to be using language like that? Asked Alfredo. Brennan shrugged. You coming here with that? He exclaimed as he pointed to what was certainly Alfredo's Tommy gun. You're playing to whip yourself, bloody. You've got God's revenge tattooed on your chest in large block letters. And you think I should be worried because I muttered motherfucker under my breath? Alfredo thought about what Brennan had said, then finally nodded. Eh, good point. You're allowed to uh, explain sometimes, you know. Now let me tell you about the shipwreck. Crack sounded the whip as it bit deeply into Alfredo's back. Welcome back. You've once again entered the world of Eldritch Horror. Good luck. I am, as always, your keeper, Dale. Not necessarily benevolent. Your guide to this world of madness. This scenario is entitled, Bless the Beasts and Children. And while the tempo won't be as fast-paced as our intro, there is still plenty of opportunities to have your mind torn to shreds, and your body too, for that matter. So keep your wits about you. Before we get into it, I'd just like to say that... I was impressed that you survived last session, that all of you came out of it more or less in one piece. And that means we've got a fair few home actions that I need to summarise. In this campaign, we're using the bond and home actions mechanics taken from Delta Green. This lets us add a little bit more meat to the characters, the things they get up to between stories, and also gives them a little bit more of a defense against the horrors of this world. So I'll start with Ruth, who chose to fulfill her responsibilities 
she tried to just forget about what happened that night on Beacon Island and return to life as normal, losing herself in her acting. And yet, the memories would not fade. Ruth's acting teacher is a rock. He makes her feel strong. He's honed her craft since she was very young and pushed her to fulfill her potential and strive to indulge in her passion for acting. What's your acting teacher's name, Ruth? Ah, um... Chuck. Chuck. Chuck Lafleur. <laughs> One of the very earliest method actors of the 20th century. That's just his stage name. His real name, even you have not been privileged enough to learn. But he's always made you feel good. He's honed your craft, something your father was never willing to do. And so... You immersed yourself in his company, hoping that it would make you forget the horrors of that night. And it didn't work. Something remained lurking just under the surface of your subconscious. The bond score didn't increase, but it didn't fall. Chuck could tell that something's not quite right about you. Something's on your mind. Your line readings didn't have the same heart that they usually did. But he felt it prudent to not pry. Baxter also chose to fulfil responsibilities and also failed in his role to increase any of his bond scores. Baxter, you're a family man. And so the way you found, the way you felt you would move past what had happened on Beacon Island was, of course, to surround yourself by those who you loved most, your wife and children. You know their names, Baxter, that you could tell us, or should I make some up? I hope Baxter remembers. Uh, his wife's name is Helene, and his kids are Maxwell and Peggy. Helene, Maxwell, and Peggy. You're still on good terms with them. Helene isn't the type of woman who would take the kids away, strip them from your life. You've remained reasonably close friends. It's not really a divorce, it's more of a rough patch, and the hope's always been there that one day, when Baxter finds himself, that you could reunite once again as a happy family. And so, you took your family out on a camping trip, just like the old times, a few days in the primeval wilderness outside of Arkham. And they would have enjoyed it, 
were it not for the screams at night, the sleep talking, the nightmares that plagued you every time you closed your eyes. Connie, you chose the self-improvement action. What skill did you improve? Oh, wait, no, you chose stay on the no, case. It's... You didn't improve. Yeah. You originally chose self-improvement. You changed it to stay on the case. Yes. So, Connie, never having believed in the supernatural, merely having adopted it as a way of life in the 1920s, cashing in on this surge of spirituality as something profitable, has learned that the supernatural does exist, or at least things that she never thought could be possible are indeed so. And so she spent her time, after last session, immersing herself in the supernatural, deciphering the case notes of Warren Thomas, spending night after night trying to break his quite simple encryption, simple for a trained agent of the Bureau of Investigation at least, Spending your days in the city library, poring over books on anthropology and history, folklore, and the occult. Had you managed to discover that Warren Thomas had been stationed on Beacon Island as he'd been investigating what he believed at the time to be a group of smugglers smuggling the mysterious gold coins from Europe, taking them into Innsmouth and potentially melting them down to fund ill-gotten schemes. At some point in his investigation, he'd intercepted a set of shipping labels indicating that some of these coins were to be shipped to a man by the name of H. Snowden in Arkham. A man who, according to a very suspicious death certificate you were able to unearth in the city archives, died of suicide. Suicide by drowning several years ago. And the bond you chose to take the hit for this action was, of course, your uncle August. The one who taught you your craft, taught you how to play people around you like a fiddle, how to pull on their, on their heartstrings and tickle their hip pocket nerve. He never believed in the supernatural either. And as he sees you immersing yourself in it, simply tells you that you would be better spending your time on le better off spending your time on less frivolous things. There's no need to worry your sweet little head about things that do not exist. Alfredo and Boothby both chose the self-improvement action. Alfredo's downtime was already covered in a prelude that I'm pending to this episode because Adam wrote a nice little story and I thought it was well written enough and detailed enough that I wouldn't rehash it by narrating it. Boothby, what skill did you improve? 
uh, firearms, rifles, and shotguns. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, that saved your life on Beacon Island, so fair enough. And which, and you chose your fiancé to take the hit for this. What is her name? Imogene Sullivan. Imogene Sullivan. Imogene Sullivan is perhaps one of the few people that Boothby cares about, which is saying something because she's a woman. Boothby doesn't typically give women much thought, but... Imogene understands him in a way that most people do not. And so it was a complete shock to her when Boothby had... He- Excuse me. And so it was a complete shock to her when Boothby... went up into the woods outside Arkham, bringing a rifle and... a very rare military spec shotgun sent by Alfredo with him. Spent a week out there shooting at bottles and tree branches and woodland animals and completely forgot their anniversary. And when Boothby returns to civilization, he was given the silent treatment. Even Boothby is smart enough when it comes to women, to understand that he did something wrong. And it quickly occurred to you, Boothby, the mistake you'd made. You'd promised you'd do something special with Imogene. Five years. Five years and one year engaged. It's a special occasion. And you completely forgot all about it. And she won't let you forget. (laughs) So, that's everyone's home actions done. Let's move on to the story. It's... Several months since the horrific events on Beacon Island. July 1926. You've all returned to some semblance of normality, living in Arkham, Massachusetts. And you were hoping that what you'd experience back in April was simply a one-off thing. A singular episode of torment and terror that would haunt you for the rest of your lives, but need not necessarily be repeated. But that's not the case. We open with Baxter. Baxter, you're in your office on the third floor of what's simply called the Red Brick Building on Water Street in North Arkham. The floors below you are devoted to a law firm and an insurance broker. The third floor is yours. It's where, by day, you run your accountancy, and by night, meet with clients to discuss your more adventurous side hustle of being a private investigator. And boy, it's been a boring day today, Baxter. Your desk is piled with reams of paper and 
manila folders. You've been boring yourself almost to death, running through the books of one of the lawyers from the law firm down below. He hasn't paid his taxes in the last four years, and it's up to you to go through all of his finances, find exactly what he owes the revenue service, find out exactly where he's entitled to cash in, and try to make sure he gets out of this whole thing afloat, preferably without going to prison or losing his family home. And so you welcome the break in monotony when someone knocks on your office door. Call out for them to enter. The door opens and in steps your assistant, Cynthia. Bus, you seen this? She says, holding up a newspaper, today's Arkham advertiser. Seems like uh, something that you'd be interested in, you know, with uh, the intersection between finance and crime. She f smooths out the newspaper and lays it down on your desk. And I'm going to bring up an image in Albert Rodeo of exactly what you see on the front page. Child of millionaire industrialist disappears from Arkham streets, says the headline. Infant son of Charles Anderson reported missing. Foul play suspected. Carter Anderson, the 14-month-old son of Boston industrialist Charles Anderson, was reported missing yesterday afternoon. Police were contacted by his parents after the child and his nanny, Miss Emily Langford, failed to return from church. The two were last seen leaving the Hotel Miskatonic Sunday morning on their way to services at the First Presbyterian Church on Saltonsall Street, near Boundary, a few blocks away. Neither was reported being seen at the service, and is believed that they disappeared before reaching their destination. The young Carter is the son of Charles Anderson, the well-known New York industrialist currently in Arkham on an extended visit. Anderson, along with his wife and two children, has been staying at the Hotel Miskatonic, guests of our own Robert Beckworth. Mr. Anderson is in Arkham to meet with local investors who hope to entice Anderson to locate his newest industrial development in the Arkham area. The missing Carter Anderson is described as 14 months old, with blonde hair and blue eyes. He was last seen wearing a blue and white sailor's outfit, and Miss Emily Langford, the nanny, is 43 years old, 5 feet tall, and weighs approximately 140 pounds. She has brown hair, brown eyes, and was wearing a navy blue dress and white sweater. The child's baby carriage was of black canvas and featured a fold-out cover. No ransom demand has been received. When asked, police declined to rule out Miss Langford as a possible suspect. Everyone's a suspect. Chief Aza Nichols was reported as saying. Anyone with knowledge of the case is urged to contact Chief of Detectives Luther Harden at the Arkham Police Station. Well, uh, what do you think, boss? Says Cynthia, 
it's got to pique your interest, right? I mean, I know you said something about wanting to get involved with Mr. Anderson's finances, but this, this seems much more adventurous, I gotta say. And look, the police seem to be struggling at the moment. Maybe you ought to give Mr. Anderson a call. Baxter's kind of just like holding the newspaper by the sides far too tightly, and his eyes just like darting across the page. This is exactly what he's been looking for for weeks or months. He hasn't had any good um, PI leads in quite some time. Shall I get Mr. Anderson's uh, contact details, boss? Says Cynthia. Please, uh, bring them to me as soon as you can. I'll get right on it, she says. She winks, turns, and steps out of the room, and as she pulls the door shut behind her, you find yourself smiling, anticipating a proper case. Something with much more meat to it than following an unfaithful husband or trying to catch someone in insurance or tax fraud. This could be your big break, and this might be just what you need to finally, finally move past what happened months ago. Just the same, Baxter. There's a feeling lurking in the back of your mind. Feeling that something isn't quite right. It's not every day a baby goes missing, let alone with the nanny in tow, without a trace. Especially not here, in relatively sleepy Arkham. It's not a small town by any means, but that type of stuff, that happens in Boston or New York, not here. And so, you find yourself reaching out to those who survived that ordeal alongside you. First, Ruth, and then Boothby. And then, of course, Alfredo and Connie follow along. And it's just afternoon, the very next day, as you all meet in Mr. Anderson's suite on the sixth floor of the Hotel Miskatonic. It's the most expensive suite in the building, one that's reserved especially for wealthy industrialists like Mr. Anderson. It's the type of place that you'll probably only ever get to witness with your own eyes this once in your life, and... Packed into this tiny hotel suite is more opulence than you've seen in your entire life. Silken sheets on the bed, expensive leather-upholstered armchairs and sofas, plush carpets, ornate bookshelves groaning under the weight of several valuable first editions. And despite all this opulence surrounding him, Mr. Anderson doesn't seem happy at all. You're instructed by his assistant to take a seat in the lounge area around a wooden coffee table. 
And as you do, Mr. Anderson looks up, extracting his face from his hands, and you see the face of someone who is in genuine anguish, and Baxter, as a father, you recognise that this man, who for all intents and purposes is on a from a completely different world to you, right now cares only for the well-being of his son. He clears his throat. <clears> I <throat> thank you all for coming. The police said they're doing their best, but I welcome any help. I can take, especially from uh, someone of Baxter's reputation. I confess your reputation precedes you, Mr. Baxter. I was thinking of reaching out myself. I fear the police are not working as fast as I would like them to. And so I was asking around for private detectives, and your name popped up. I'm unfamiliar with any of your companions, but if you think that they'll be of assistance to you in helping me find Carter, then I welcome them, and I will help them in any way that I can. Before you have a chance to answer, there's a knock at the hotel door. Anderson looks over at it and signals for his assistant to open. When the door opens, in steps a rather eccentric-looking figure. Here's where I introduce Demiurge, who wasn't with us last session. Demiurge, please go ahead and introduce your character. Describe a little what they look like and what sort of vibe the rest will get when they see them walk in. You're looking at an unsmiling middle-aged man with uh, iron-gray hair. He's wearing a monocle and uh, is dressed in a British uh, casual military outfit with a few medals on it. Older ones. Not World War One medals. He's got a neatly trimmed mustache and goatee. And he's wearing a uh, dress cap, which he removes the second he's inside the room. He's walking with a bit of a limp. Has a cane with a silver head. He's trim. It's clear he was much stronger, much more muscly in his youth, but that's gone to seed now. Good evening. I presume I'm not interrupting anything at the minute? No, no, of course not, says Mr. Anderson. Please, please, I'd like you all to meet a very dear and old friend of mine. Was invaluable to me when I was expanding my business up in London over the drink. And what is your character's name, Demiurge? He reaches into his jacket and pulls out a card and offers it 
the cross, he is Lord Harold Fosterland Smythe, as said engraved in gold upon the guard. Lord Smythe, uh, this is Baxter, uh, the private investigator I was telling you about. Uh, Lord Smythe uh, dropped what he was doing to get to Massachusetts as fast as he can. I appreciate a friend reaching out to help when I need it the most. But Lord Smythe here seemed to take particular interest when I brought up your name, Baxter. Uh, Baxter produces his own business card and hands it to Lord Smythe. Baxter Hornsby of Baxter Hornsby's accountancy and private investigating firm. Yes, I know. Pleased to make your acquaintance in the flesh. There are things I'd like to discuss with you, but now's neither the time nor the place. There's family at stake here. Indeed. Mr. Anderson signals for his assistant to leave you. The assistant silently nods and says, I'll return with some tea and coffee, sir, and then departs from the room. While we wait for Higgins to come back, uh, before we get into business, we should uh, conclude formalities. I, of course, am Charles Anderson, CEO of Anderson Electronics. I'm pleased to make your acquaintance. I only wish it was under nicer circumstances. I am, of course, familiar already with Baxter, but the rest of you, I must admit, are new faces to me. Except, he glances over at Boothby, and it takes him a few seconds, but then he finally smiles. Ah, you're Boothby's son. Thought I recognized your face. He's been one of the... Your, your father has been uh, one of the leading distributors of the products that my company produces. It's a pleasure to make your acquaintance. I know we've had some... You've had some dealings in the past with my father that I've been very interested to listen in on to get a little bit more business acumen. Yes. Well, I've, uh... I must confess I know little about the, uh... inner workings of Boothby's department stores, but your father has got a head on his shoulders, and I would assume that his son is a chip off the old block. Pleased to make your acquaintance. He shakes your hand. He then turns to Ruth and Alfredo and Connie. He says, I'm afraid I don't recognize any of you, but I'm glad that you're rendering assistance in my time of need. Reaches out a hand to each of you, offering you a shake. Alfredo just sort of stares at it and says, Yeah, well, I don't mean anything by this, mister. I'm sorry your kid got taken. It's a bit like the Lindbergh baby, isn't it? You rich fellas, you gotta guard your stuff better. I'm here because we all were involved in some weird shit a few weeks ago, and I want me to get another taste of that. Don't know about the rest of you folks. 
But I get you back. You'll see my legs. He raises an eyebrow as he pulls his hand back. So Baxter immediately dives in and does damage control. Yes, uh, he's he's joking. You see, he's uh, he's he's quite quite a jokester. He's uh, very reliable and a hard worker. I get it, a bit of levity to add some hope and and, and positivity to the situation. Yes, look, I'll be honest, I couldn't care less who you are or who you work for or why you're here. All I care about is that I've got good men and women, he gestures to Ruth and Connie, Getting their boots on the ground, looking for my boy, and that they're capable at what they're doing. He holds out his hand to Ruth and Connie in turn, and and you, uh, lovely ladies, uh, to what ple- to what do I owe the pleasure? No offense, but uh, I wouldn't have expected uh, those of the fairer persuasion to uh, want to willingly involve themselves in the case of a missing child. Ruth flashes a a wide smile and and takes his hand and says, Purely self-interest, I assure you. Yes, well, perhaps that motherly instinct might uh, help. I imagine my boy's in quite some distress, and he'll certainly need a loving bosom when he's found. He looks over at Connie, takes in the sight of the talismans and amulets she's wearing, and he says, And you, ma'am? What are you, some kind of fortune teller? Uh, No, I am, in fact, a medium. And, uh, and it's, when I heard it was of a missing child, I was more than happy to help. A medium? That's... That's when... When spirits communicate with the... Oh dear, you... Oh, I, I certainly hope you won't be necessary, and... He turns to Baxter, raises an eyebrow, and says, I must confess, Mr. Baxter, I had high hopes for you, but... Calling in psychics, of all people? Uh, Well, look, it's not like I'm in any position to refuse willing help. Uh, Baxter is only just finding out now that she's a psychic and goes into damage control once again. (laughs) Now, you see, the thing about that is uh, your child is perfectly safe, and Nanny too, hopefully, but sometimes... Other dead spirits might have seen something. Uh, rest, rest assured, I don't assume that they've, uh, there's anything... They're not going to any harm, I, I, I promise. While Baxter is stammering pathetically, Ruth takes Connie's hand and is like, You never told me! Oh my god! <laughs> Lord Fosterland Smythe raises a finger. Come now, didn't the bard say there are more things on heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy? In any case... She's one more pair of eyes, no? Well spoken, my old friend. Personally, I think it's all bunk, but if it helps find Carter, I won't complain. At this point, the door of the suite opens, and the assisted 
returns to the room. He's carrying a silver tray laden with very fragile-looking teacups made of the kind of china that looks like it would break if you so much as stared at it the wrong way. He silently places a cup of tea down on the coffee table, one for each of you. And then he nods and dismisses himself from the room again. Mr. Anderson folds his hands together and leans over the table as he takes his cup of tea and takes a sip. So, to business then. Well, you've probably seen it in the papers, and that's pretty much the gist of it. My boy's been missing for two days now. Emily took him out for a walk in his baby carriage, said she was going to take him to the church service. I... not one for going to church in a town that I'm only visiting, but... Well, Miss Langford is incredibly pious and felt it would be good to take the boy out for a walk. The church is on Saltonsall Street, and it should have taken no more than half an hour walking from here to the church. However, I'm told by the people at the church that neither of them arrived. And the police haven't been able to find anything since. There's been no ransom note, no contact from any possible kidnappers. It's like they simply vanished out of thin air. There's one thing that sticks out in my mind, and that's that Miss Langford left unusually early that morning. The service at the church starts at 9 a.m., I believe. I distinctly recall her saying... And like I said, it should take only half an hour walking to get there. It's not far. And yet, she was up and out of here just past seven. Didn't say why, simply said she had some things to attend to. And, you know, I had some things to attend to myself. I've got a lot of business that I'm still dealing with. That's why I'm here in town, and I didn't see fit to question her. So, I'm not sure what would be a good way to start, but if you like, you could drop my name over at the police station and tell that incompetent boob of a chief that you're helping me with this case and see if maybe you can pool resources or something like that. Otherwise... Maybe you could go canvassing in the streets, see if anyone saw or heard anything. Or hell, you, you're local here in this town. You probably know of things like this that have happened before. Then if you don't, you know how to get details. You could probably talk your way into the newspaper office and see if you can find anything that might be related to what's happened to my boy. First pertinent question, first. Is that the church you normally go to? No, no, not at all. 
I believe Miss Langford's been there once or twice. Uh, she's not local to Arkham either, but she's got family here. She's been here more than a few times. That's why I brought her along. So when you come to visit, that isn't your regular Sunday uh, place of worship? Your appearance. Appearance? Um, yes. 50. 50. He falters for a moment. As if there's something that he doesn't want to say, something he thinks could damage his reputation, but this is his son's life at stake. He sighs and he says, I'll be honest with you, Mr. Baxter, I'm not much of a church-goer in any town. Don't believe I've been to a service in going on seven years now. And... I'll be honest, there are some out there, especially in this neck of the woods, who'd begrudge me that. Look, just covering my bases. I've managed to keep it out of the papers so far, but... I'm sure there are people who have their suspicions, and... Well, you know what churchgoers can be like, Mr. Baxter. They're very insular, and they can hold a grudge. Some of them resent the fact that I have money, that I've been successful, and who knows what they might do to hurt me, and my bottom line. Right, that is the roundabout way of getting what I was asking for. So you say that perhaps somebody might have a grudge there. Seems like perhaps. a good place to go and investigate as well. It might be a good place to check out. I'd start with the police, because they've already done most of the groundwork, I think. Yes, but, uh, you'd be surprised what people don't say to the police. Hell, you're the detective, he says. I'll leave it up to you where you want to begin. All I care about is that my boy is returned safe and sound. Are you a father, Mr. Baxter? I have two wonderful children, thank you for asking. Yes, of course, well... You would understand that nothing means anything to me right now more than my son being found safe and unharmed. I can assure you, I'll do everything within my power to make sure that you get your son back safe and sound, as will everybody here. Good. He takes another sip of his tea. Now... I'm not sure what I can tell you that hasn't already been reported in the papers, but I'm open to fielding any questions you may have. Otherwise, if you're ready to start with your investigation, I'm ready to discuss finances. Um, Baxter has a normal fee that he sends to his clients, but it's usually after the fact. So he's going to just deftly avoid that topic for now. Of course, I would not ask you to work for free, even for someone as illustrious as myself. And I'll be offering $100 to each of you if you're able to find any information that helps me get my son back. I think do in I this understand? town, if there's, if there's anybody who can do it, it'd probably be us. I don't ask for money, though I do ask if we could perhaps discuss publishing. You see, I 
you know, I'm sure, about my detective novels, and I think perhaps that giving the story uh, a wider audience could, you know, really increase the uh, sympathy and knowledge of your case. Yes, you write detective novels or something like that, he says. It's obvious by the look on his face that he's never read any of them. If that's what you would like as payment, then sure, I'm willing to discuss it. Anything for my son. Do any of you have any questions? Otherwise, uh, I have a meeting with an economist downtown that I'm supposed to be at. He looks at the wristwatch on his... He looks at the wrist... The, the very expensive-looking wristwatch, I will add, that he's wearing, and says... Hmm, in about 20 minutes. Well, whenever it comes to missing people, time is of the essence, so... As Alfredo opens his wallet, pulls out a dozen new $100 notes and hands them to... Mr. Carter... Uh, Mr. Anderson. Mr. Anderson just takes them, looks at them and says... Uh, what's this boob paying me for? Don't ever offer me money again. You got that? Okay, sure. You're one of those weirdos who works for free. All right, Mr. Baxter, I'll allow you to uh, discuss the finer details with your own people. Please enjoy the rest of your tea, uh... I'll, uh, have Higgins leave a business card by the door so you'll be able to contact me if I can be of any further assistance. Otherwise, next time we meet, hopefully you'll have either information or my son in tow. Please remember and be assured that every waking moment that passes, I worry for his safety. You're my only hope. He smiles in spite of the dire situation, finishes draining his tea, and then steps out of the room, leaving you alone, surrounded by all this opulence. Ruth and uh, and Connie are just in the corner, talking to themselves, and, and, and Ruth is asking her, and how does it feel when you're conducting a seance? Like, what what is that... How does that feel inside you? What kind of emotions do you feel? Well, it can vary depending on the situation. But, uh, and the spirit, which is trying to contact it, I usually end up portraying whatever emotion they most strongly possess. Uh-huh, uh -huh. so you like... So you kind of understand what they're feeling. Uh, in a sense, it's more like I'm acting as the spirit's mouth temporarily. I'm, that's good, that's good. I am with which that they I'm the vessel with which that they can speak to their loved ones through. Ruth just scribbles um some notes in a little little pocketbook. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Go Sorry, back to I get back back to turns to the group and uh, as soon as uh as soon as uh Mr. Anderson has left the room and says Right, I wasn't paying lip service when I said time is up the essence. We need to hurry. Yeah. Daylight's wasting and evidence is disappearing. Okay, and Mr. Radio Man. <laughs> and a child's life is in danger. So, Mr. Anderson right. did give you several places you could start. 
The most obvious, of course, would be to head down to the police station, reach out to them, see if you could pool resources, because they've probably done the groundwork already. Another avenue, like he mentioned, would be to head to the local library or the newspaper office and see if you can maybe find any details about similar things that have happened in the past. Children going missing is not a very common thing in Arkham, especially the children of wealthy industrialists. If something like that has happened before, then it would probably have been heavily reported on, and there might be some commonalities. You also know, and you have the map of Arkham here in Owlbear, that the nanny and the child left Miskatonic Hotel at 7am and went to head to the church on Sultan Soul Street. So you know roughly where they would have gone and you could probably canvas the streets, though Baxter, you would know as a detective that canvassing the streets at random, even when you're in the vicinity of where you suspect the crime to have happened, you probably won't get many valuable leads. Yeah, I was going to say, it would be a Baxter's opinion that he would be going to the police station to talk to the detective in charge, uh, recommend that somebody head to the newspaper, and another group head towards um, the church, and maybe yeah, stop in at a business or two along the way, but head mostly to the church to do some investigating. Yeah, so Baxter wants to go to the police station, so... We're gonna He's have had run-ins with the detectives before. Yeah, of course he has. Probably not on a missing person's case, but... so we've No, got... this is his first. We've got three groups for three separate leads, which seems easy to me. So who would like to accompany Baxter to the, to the police station? Boothby will go. Yeah, Boothby will go. Yeah, Ruth will join. Ruth will join? I was so about to say, please, please be out, yay. Yeah. Absolutely not, Alfredo. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. he definitely doesn't want to be in a police station. They probably got Why ever not? <laughs> I feel like it'd be appropriate for Alfredo to go to the church, of all things. Yeah. Yeah, so... Sorry, so it was, yeah, so it was the police station, the church, and what was the third place again, sorry? Oh, newspaper. the newspaper. Yeah. Oh, the newspaper. Is Keep in mind, you know... Is there to find in the local underworld as a um... criminal element? Yeah, that's a possibility too. Um, you might have, you might be able to reach out, see if any of them know anything about the disappearance. And I have in. a quick question along that line. So yep. there's the mention of this possibly being like a corporate um, kind of thing, like something to do with business. Well, the what? fact that the fact that it's the son of a wealthy industrialist, yeah, it brings that to mind. Would Boothby being obviously involved in business, especially since there's a Boothby's in Arkham. Are there any like leads that he personally would know of, of businesses or people that he think might be involved in shadier things like that? Hmm, I would like Boothby to roll education for me. Uh, I'm going to use Two luck to take that down to a, um, success. Success. So, 
Boothby, before you've even left the room and decided on your course of action, you are very aware that what Mr. Anderson's come to Arkham to do, to scout the location for a new electronics plant, is of particular interest to several of the town's major players. There are some that want to be there and, you know, prop him up when he gets this electronics concern running so that they can distribute his products or work with him. But there are also others who would prefer to not see him set up shop here in Arkham, either because they're planning to move into similar business themselves or they plan to acquire the patch of land that his proposed electronics plant would be built on. There are definitely those who would pretty much take any opportunity to sabotage his plans in Arkham if they had the chance, though you're not sure personally if they would resort to kidnapping a child. You do know, however, that if they were to do this, they would almost certainly hire some fall guy, someone from the local criminal underworld to do the dirty work for them. And so I think Alfredo wants to get in contact with the local underworld. <laughs> which leaves the church and the newspaper. And I will point out that you don't have to do all these leads. Mm. So, Connie, that lead Connie and Lord Smythe, that leads you to make your choices. Where would you like to go? I think I think Connie might have the best chance at the newspapers rather than the church. <laughs> yeah, she does have a way with people. I, I believe that leaves me to investigate the church and see if anyone there has turned their eyes more toward the terrestrial rather than heavenward. Very well. All of your courses of action are decided upon, so Baxter picks up the teacup in front of him, looks like he's about to take a sip and then shrugs, places it back down on the coffee table, claps his hands to get you all into gear. You silently wish each other good luck as you exit the hotel room and descend down through the maze of corridors that is the Hotel Miskatonic out onto the bustling streets of downtown Arkham in the early afternoon. We'll go with the police first, I think. Because that's the biggest group. So Ruth, Baxter, yeah, Ruth, Baxter, and Boothby. I presume, Boothby, you're going to be their uh, driver. You're going to be the one to get them there in style to the police station. He has a good drive score. Yeah. So I'd like you to go ahead and... I'd like you to go ahead and roll your drive for me, and we'll see, you know, if you end up getting some extra time to get some extra clues. 
I completely failed that goal. Would you like to push it, or would you like to accept it as it is? I'll just accept it as it is. So, Boothby has a very, very expensive car. He's not driving a Model T. None of that mass-produced garbage. Boothby's car stands out on the streets. It is a Rolls-Royce that looks is so clean that you can see your faces reflected in its bodywork and as you clamber in boothby proudly tells you how he has someone whose job is to drive it out every morning and get it washed and buffered for him so that it looks brand new every day and he never has to so much as see a single speck of dirt on it the streets of downtown Arkham are fairly packed at this hour. It's nothing like you'd see in the modern day, but there's a fair few cars on the street. Horse-drawn carts as well. There are throngs of people going back and forth, conducting their business, lazily enjoying lunch. And... It's not a long drive from the Miskatonic Hotel to the police station, the police station being right there on Hill, where Hill Street meets Pickman Street, right there on the corner. But you have to negotiate the afternoon traffic, and there aren't traffic lights, there aren't side streets or an infrastructure that's designed to facilitate quick travel, and it takes all of 30 minutes before Boothby's lovely Rolls Royce pulls into the parking lot beside the very municipal looking police station. It's attached to the city hall and the building is made of the standard, is it made in the standard American Gothic red brick colonial structure with faux roman columns lining the front as you enter the police station you find the reception lobby mercifully empty there's a notice board up on the wall that displaying a number of wanted posters and as you enter you see alfredo's face staring back at you from one of the posters twisted up in a snarl and it says that he's wanted for questioning in relation to several disappearances a reward is offered for information leading to his arrest. There's a bored-looking young lady with frizzy brown hair behind the reception office, and as she sees the three of you step in, she looks up, straightens her hair, and smiles. Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the Arkham Police Department. Is there something I can do for you? Are you here to report a crime? Or are you seeking information on how to uh, engage with your local community watch? Did Mr. Anderson drop the name of the detective who was working on this? 
I can't um, remember. He did not, but the newspaper article said that uh, a man oh, by the name of... Uh, let me just check my notes. A man by the name of Aza, Aza Nichols. He's the chief of police, and he was the one listed as being responsible for the case. There's probably a detective under him. In fact, the newspaper article lists Luther Harden as the detective to contact if you have information. So it's up to you whether you want to ask for the chief, Aza Nichols, or the detective, Luther Harden. Uh, Bax is going to put his card down on the desk and ask for Luther to start with. He can work his way up the chain. So I would... Is there any... Do you say anything as you just place your card down, or just... Uh, yeah, uh, Bax is going to announce himself as Baxter Hornsby, private detective, uh, and that this is concerning the um, uh, disappearance of the Anderson child. Oh? Well, I'm not sure that... Uh, I'm not sure that... Detective, that Chief Nichols is accepting help on the case, but please, I insist you say as you slide the card towards her, and I would like Baxter to please make a law check for me. Ooh, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to spend three luck to make that pass. Luck makes it a pass. Very well. She picks up your card and she seems to have heard of it because, seems to have heard of you because as she reads your name, she smiles and she says, oh, uh, Mr. Baxter, uh, well, ordinarily it would be against protocol to, uh, accept help from a private detective, but I suppose given the nature of the case and that it's involving Mr. Anderson, and, well, the chief said that he'll accept any information from any source. Uh, sure, I can uh, arrange a meeting for you. Uh, do you mind waiting for a few moments? A few moments? That's no problem. Oh, she says. She looks over at Ruth and Boothby and says, uh, May I know uh, who... May I know who your friends are? Uh, I have to record, uh, you know, who's, uh, who's involved in the case, given its importance, and... Uh, they're my associates. They can speak for themselves. Boothby, um, leans, like, really obnoxiously on the, um, counter. You, you know the type of guy who leans on a counter like that. Of and he's like, <laughs> um, Kenneth Boothby, I'm sure you've heard of me, the heir to the Boothby Empire, author of the Detective Phillips novels. Uh, if anything, uh, or... Uh. Make me a charm check, please, Boothby. It may surprise you, but he actually does have charm. <laughs> he has that kind of charm. You know, that, that one. That one. Oh, yeah, he that so charm. He oozes charm. <laughs> oozes the word. He, he bungled that roll. He bungled Ooze that like roll? Slug. <laughs> Would he like to push it? No, it's more fun to fail. Yeah. Based. I I'm afraid I haven't heard of that series of books, sir. She says, I would like to read them, though. Uh, and, uh, 
I'm very thrilled and honored to have uh, such an illustrious author assisting with this case, but... And she looks, over, she looks over at Baxter and she says, I I'm afraid uh, an author of sensational fiction is not exactly the type of person the chief is looking for help from. Did not I mention I'm heir to a department store empire? There's, there's a booth piece right down the... The road, I'm sure you've seen it. Make me a credit rating check, please, Boothby. <laughs> I succeeded. Oh, Boothby? Of uh, the Boothby's department store? Yes, yes, that one. Mm, well, the chief is probably going to be receptive to uh, any contributions you'd like to make. City Hall cuts funding every every year, and it, it's getting harder and harder to work with what we have, especially on a case such as this. And then she looks over at Ruth, and she says, And you, dear? The inspector in training. Peers over God, at Baxter. That's an eyebrow. Peers <laughs> over at Baxter and says, A female detective? How progressive of you, Mr. Baxter. Yes, we're uh, trying something out. I'm not sure Boothby. if it'll work or last. Boothby rolls his eyes. <laughs> Go ahead, <laughs> Ruth, and make a fast talk check for me. Uh, sure. Oh god, I didn't get my roller up. Hang on. That is... Uh, oh god, that's a 99 against um, 5. <laughs> Would You don't have fast talk and you're an actor? I don't have fast talk, I have, um, hang on, let me look at this impossible navigator sheet. You probably um, have persuade. I do, I've got 75 persuade. Alright, I'll let, I'll let you roll persuade instead. Sure. Do you think I should swap that? Yeah, but after the session. We'll just use Persuade in the meantime. Oh, I got just uh, just under 74 against 75. The woman smiles and she says, You know, when I was a little girl, I thought that it would be nice if, you know, I could be a detective one day. Help, help bring people who hurt others to justice, but, well, you know, I... I'm a woman, and, you know, it's a man's world, and... Mr. Baxter, the fact that you've taken on this lady and would allow her to be involved in a case like this... Uh, you really are a darling. Okay. Uh, Baxter just kind of chuckles to himself nervously and adjusts his shirt. Boothby is like, you You really don't want to go into that line of work. It's so grim. You know, it's it's not suited for such a beautiful young woman like you. Besides, I heard exercise, it, it does pour things to a woman's body. <laughs> she just shoots Boothby a fairly well-concealed look of disgust, hiding it under her professional smile. And then she says, well, I am just a secretary after all. Please, make yourselves comfortable, she gestures towards the chairs in the lobby. I'll notify the chief that you're here, and uh, he'll see you shortly. 
She gets up and disappears through a door behind the counter. You sit in silence for a few minutes until she re-emerges. Right this way, please, she says, and gestures for you to follow her. She leads you beyond the lobby into the main part of the station beyond. It's a big open room lined with rows of desks and there are tired-looking uniformed officers rifling through paperwork or shooting the shit. As they see you approach, they immediately shut up and bury their faces in the reams of paperwork or idly smash keys on the typewriters in front of them. The chief's office, however, is partitioned away from this. It's a little room at the very back. And he even gets his own door with a frosted glass window with the words Chief Azen Nichols stamped on it in faded black lettering. The secretary raps on the door with her knuckles and then she gives you a shrug and a smile, silently wishing you good luck and then turns and darts back towards reception. Oh, Mr. Baxter, uh, please, come in. There's a voice from inside the office. Uh, Baxter will open the door and let everybody into the room. Into the office, holding the door open for the others, and the chief's office isn't really anything special. The police are either underfunded or were never that big to begin with, but it's clear to you, Baxter, that they're in over their heads on this case. The chief's office is cramped enough that there's barely enough room for the three of you to stand side by side in front of his desk, and the chief himself doesn't look like he's especially cut out for this line of work. He's overweight, his vest and tie dishevelled, barely hanging on his body, and his face is so covered in wrinkles it looks like he hasn't slept in at least 48 hours. He yawns. Now look, Mr. Baxter, I want to be open with you. It's not normal for, for us to uh, cooperate with an outside contractor. In fact, uh, Many around here would resent people sticking their noses into our job. But, on account of it's Mr. Anderson we're dealing with, and a child's life is on the line, we're willing to pool our resources. So long as you're willing to defer to us to handle the dangerous work and ensure that you don't take matters into your own, into your own hands, you understand? Yes, perfectly understood. We're actually here on behest of uh, Mr. Anderson himself. We just spoke to him. You've spoken to Mr. Anderson yourself? Yeah, we just did his apartment on the, uh, in the hotel. He came directly here from there. I did inform him that we were doing our very best and advised him that it would be best to leave this to the police. But I suppose he's a man whose son is missing. I can't very well blame him for reaching out to outside sources. I'd offer you a seat, but... He gestures to the front of the desk, and there's only one chair, and there's three of you. He says... Boothby sits so down. <laughs> Boothby sits down anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. 
says Chief Ace, says Chief Nichols. I'll try to make this quick. Uh, what you've read in the papers and what you've likely heard from Mr. Anderson is pretty much what we're working with. There are some other things that we've managed to dig up, but so far I'm trying to keep those out of the public eye. Wouldn't want them getting in the paper, and so you'll forgive me if I don't immediately divulge every aspect of the case. But please, go ahead, ask your questions, Mr. Baxter, and I'll do my best to answer within reason. So my first question is, is there any more information you can give us based on this profile? And um, Baxter kind of relays the the gist of everything that Mr. Anderson has uh, expressed, like all the details he's found and everything from the newspaper clipping. Well, he's just probing uh, to see if there's anything missing from this picture. Well, of course, uh, I can go through that. The details aren't in the papers, of course, you know, time frames and the like, but I can help you put that together. So Miss Langford was last seen leaving the Hotel Miskatonic uh, around 7 o'clock Sunday morning. The service was scheduled to begin at 9, so she had two hours between when she left and when the service was to begin. Now, you're a local, so you understand that from the Hotel Miskatonic to the Presbyterian Church on Saltonsall Street is about a 30-minute walk. It should have taken no more than that. Now, we've done some calculations, and we've determined that if she was headed straight from the hotel to the church, the most logical route would have been to travel west on either College, Pickman High, or Saltonsall Streets, and we've had uniformed officers searching each of those streets, canvassing for witnesses, but so far they've found no evidence. So nobody's seen or heard? No, uh, nobody claims to have seen either her or the child uh, between those times on any of those streets. How did your investigations at the church proceed? Well, none of the parishioners recognized the description we gave to them. They said that... Uh, well, they were certain that Miss Langford was not present that day. She's not a regular member of the congregation, and they ensured me that a stranger among the congregation would have been noticed. None of them remember seeing Miss Langford. Now, as for Miss Langford herself, she's been employed by the Andersons for seven months, as I understand it, and came with excellent references. We did a background check on her, and we found that she was previously employed by a New York couple for over nine years. She's highly regarded, though we can't rule her out as a suspect because everyone is a suspect until proven otherwise, but we do not personally believe she had anything to do with the disappearance. Did you canvas anywhere else, to the north or any of the other surrounding streets? No, so far we've only had enough resources to canvas College, Pickman High, and Saltonsall. I can't imagine why she would have walked to the n further north or south than that, but the fact that she left earlier than would be required to get to the church indicates to me that 
maybe she had other business to attend to, or perhaps she just wanted to take her time, or maybe she didn't know how long it would take to get there. Now, something tells me that we're looking in the wrong place. I'd like the three of you who are present to do psychology checks, please. Can do. Ooh, I got a 20 against 85. Hmm. That's a fail for me there. And Boothby? Fail. Fail. So, it's fairly obvious to you, Ruth. You're an actor. You know how to read people. You know how emotions work. He takes a second to hesitate before he quite confidently says that... The police they've had canvassing those streets didn't find anything. It's obvious to you that that moment of hesitation was him stopping himself from saying something that he didn't want you to know, covering his tracks, and you get the impression that they did indeed find something. So they really didn't find anything? Uh, no, like I said, uh... We don't have many officers who are free to do the work, but we've had at least one officer canvassing each of those streets since Sunday, and, well, no witnesses have come forward. I'm sure they're such competent men, though. Surely something's come up. Head and make a charm check, please, Ruth. I see. Okay, that's um, that's eighty. So let me see what the roll is. Seventeen against eighty. Yeah, that that's that's a hard pass. Well, of of course, my men take their jobs seriously, and they're highly trained. And so surely they must have turned something up. Well, like I said, there are aspects of the case that we're trying to keep from prying eyes. And he turns to Baxter and says, "Mr. Baxter." Do I have your word that nothing I say here is going to make it in the, into the papers? So I'm not interested in publicity. I want to find this missing child as much as you. Well, look, I'm a dad myself, and I can see that you are, so we've got some common ground. All right. Was on College Street, uh, one of the officers uh, yesterday morning found uh, what we believe to be Miss Langford's handbag in a trash can. Somebody had dumped it there, obviously. Still got her personal effects inside. We haven't had the chance to look at it yet as we've been busy attending to other leads. We've been trying our best to uh, get someone in the church to come up with anything and we're combing the rest of those streets with a fine-toothed comb. He sighs, and then he stands up and turns his back to you for a moment, rifling through a metal filing cabinet. When he turns around again, he's holding a woman's purse. It's covered in dirt and gunk from the trash can. He drops it onto his desk. This is it. Now, I won't allow you to take it from here, because we still need to do a proper canvassing of it, but if you'd like to have a quick look at her personal effects, knock yourself out. Yeah, Bax is going to get to work and see what's in there, and just see uh, what kind of state it's in as well. 
Clearly it's dirty and disheveled, but if it's anything notable. Can I also potentially do a psychology check to see if there's anything like that springs out as like emotionally resonant about the state of the purse? Yeah, definitely. Go ahead. And I'll ask uh, Baxter to do a spot hidden check, please. That's 27 against 85. 27 against 85. Lovely. These these are good stats. Yeah, and Baxter, spot hidden. That is a regular pass. So, Ruth, as Baxter pops open the purse, clips the little latch open and starts rifling through it, it's obvious to you that the purse is in a state of disarray. There's a stick of lipstick inside, a small packet of pocket tissues, um, a notebook and a pen, and... The way the purse is set up, you get the impression that each of these things would have their own place. You know, her, given especially that the money in the purse is folded up and wrapped in a little clip and shoved into the side of the purse in its own little compartment, it's obvious to you that all of these things would have their own place. And the fact that they're just lying around willy-nilly tells you that this purse was most certainly probably dumped by someone who wasn't actually Miss Langford. It was tossed in the trash with such a lack of care that it was probably someone who just was disposing of loose ends. Oh, she didn't get rid of this. And it instantly causes a feeling of foreboding to well up in your stomach because you know that no self respecting lady of leisure would willingly leave her purse in such a state. It seems possible that she ran into foul play. Baxter, you rifle through the personal effects, laying them out on the table, and none of them seem especially especially important to you. Makeup, pen, notebook... It is interesting that the money is still in the purse. Whoever dumped it didn't take the money. Which indicates that if this is a crime, that it probably wasn't a robbery or any other monetary thing. It wasn't motivated by a need to take someone's money. You're about to start piling the personal effects back into the purse when you notice at the when you notice sewn into the side of the purse a little zipper that you didn't see before you grab the zip and slide it open and inside is a single shred of paper folded up you fish it out unfold it and lay it down on the desk with all the other personal effects and i'm going to be putting a picture of it up in our bear for you it's a simple shred of paper, likely torn off a notebook similar to the one that's in the purse. It reads, Exchange new coat, Boothby's, open time 8.30am. Ooh, where is the nearest Boothby's, actually? So according to the map, which represents what you know of Arkham, the local Boothby's would be on Washington Street. A couple blocks south of Sultansall Street, where the church is. 
and outside of the area that the police are canvassing. And in fact, Boothby's, Boothby's the first one to tell you this. And he just turns directly to you and says, Oh, yeah, Boothby's on Washington Street. Yes, we, we just got those coats in. They're flying off the shelves. He has like a magnetic pull to any nearby Boothby's. He can just point like in any direction. Instead of cardinal directions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> he just knows. The magnet always points to Boothby's. Would you well, like in that to... case, it means yeah. that um, we should probably check out the Boothby's as well at some point, see if anybody yeah. noticed them. Or at least Washington Street in general. Mm. So, Baxter, at this point I'd like you to make an intelligence check for me, please. Sure, that's good, Ron. Uh, that is an excellent roll. That's a hard pass. As you point down at the piece of paper and mention that it says Boothby's, the theory pops into your mind. Of course the police haven't found any witnesses on College Street, Pickford Street, High Street, or Sultansall Street. And this is why she probably left the hotel earlier than she needed to. She didn't travel to the church down any of those streets. If she intended to go to Boothby's, it would make sense that she headed directly south from the hotel to Boothby's. And then when she was done at Boothby's, just headed west down Washington Street and up to the church on the corner of Saltonstall. Mm, and yet her purse was found up um, West Street. On, yeah, up on College Street, which is far away from where she would have been, which lends even more credence to the fact that somebody dumped it. Ah, we didn't find that one, see? Says Aza Nichols. Both bees, both bees. Uh, what, that's down on Washington Street, isn't it? Can't say I'm a fan of the place. The prices are always much higher than they need to be. So if I might suggest, uh, potentially uh, congregate all your men around Garrison Street and West Street, uh, particularly uh, down Boundary Street as well. I have a feeling that uh, instead of going uh, horizontally, she may have uh, taken a perpendicular route. Yeah, I see what you're getting at. I'll have some men posted there, but they're currently completing their investigations elsewhere. It may take a few hours. Tell you what, look, don't take this as official endorsement, but you're a, pri you're a private detective, and if you want to go canvas that street yourself in the meantime, be my guest. But if you find anything, let me know. Uh, Bruce, uh, not Bruce, um, Baxter does his quick little dance that he always does with, um, Exchanging business cards and getting details, it's just, uh, it's a few great people. You've made a good enough impression on him that as you shake his hand and as you motion for Boothby to get out of the seat and follow you out of the office, he holds up his hand. Wait, wait, since you're uh, working for me in a more or less official capacity at this point, I should tell you that my men are currently investigating another disappearance. You have to keep this quiet. I don't want this one in the papers at all. One kid going missing's enough, but two kids? One day- He sighs. I'm afraid so. Look, I've got the detective's police report here. 
He pulls open the filing cabinet drawer again, extracts a manila folder, and then slides a piece of paper out of it, places it down straight on the desk in front of you, and I will be putting a picture of that in Owlbear. Or not, because I forgot to add it to Owlbear. But... He hands you a handwritten police report, and it concerns the disappearance reported yesterday evening of a five-year-old girl by the name of Donna Segreto. Donna was apparently playing with her older sister, Bethany, in the backyard of their home on Sentinel Street at about 5.30pm. When Bethany went into the home to get a glass of apple juice, she left her sister alone, and when she emerged, her sister was gone, as if she had vanished without a trace. The police report states that preliminary investigations were conducted around Donna Segredo's home on Sentinel Street, and while they found no sign of the girl herself, A neighbour who lived in that street said that he witnessed a black Ford truck travelling to the west at high speed away from the scene. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bax is going to mentally file away a note to check back with the detective later to see if there's a third one today. Hmm, so... We're caught up on trying to find this black Ford truck, says the chief. Now, if the girl was taken from Sentinel Street and the truck was heading west, then that means it could be anywhere, but Donna Segredo's house on Sentinel Street is also on the corner of where Sentinel meets College Street. Now, considering that's where Miss Langford's purse was found, we believe with reasonable certainty that the black Ford truck would have then traveled west down College Street. Where it went from there, we've got no way of knowing. But if this is a kidnapping, and indeed it's being done by the same people, we reasonably suspect that their hideout is somewhere in the western part of the city. Yeah, uh, Baxter is going to be absolutely double filing away um, to check up with the detective later about a missing a third missing person this afternoon. We we just need a way to narrow it down. You understand? Yeah. Well, you know. Oh yeah, go for it. So Bethany didn't hear anything at all. Surely her little sister would have screamed or something if she had gotten grabbed, and that just seems like such a short time frame for a kidnapping. As far as we know, no scream, no sign of a struggle. Hmm. Now, the only reason we haven't brought this to Mr. Anderson's attention is because Donna Segredo is not the daughter of a wealthy industrialist. They're normal middle-class family. God-fearing like the rest of us. Well, in our time canvassing this afternoon, um, if we find anything that can aid in your search for this uh, Black Ford, 
we make sure to uh, ring you at our earliest convenience. That'd be very much appreciated. He scoops up the purse and the police report, dumps them back into the filing cabinet, and then yawns. Ugh. And as he yawns, you can see on his face that he's just tired of all of this. He just wants it to be over. Huh. Damn near close to retire and thought I'd retire without having to deal with something as big as this. Look, anything you can do would be appreciated. But look, I got a press conference I gotta do. So, uh, if there's nothing else, I'll, uh... I'll be dismissing y'all so you can continue your investigations. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get right to that. Time is wasting. He claps his hands. Alright, best of luck. And remember... Where are, the, where are the cops? You're just helping out. You think something's getting dangerous, you let us know. Yes, they still haven't given me a badge and gun, so... Thank you for your time, Mr. Baxter. Yeah, we'll be in contact. He nods as you... Help Boothby out of his seat, and hold the door open for Boothby and Ruth, and then exit the office after them. So... Let's go to Lord Smythe first, as he's the newer player. So, Lord Smythe, as soon as you leave the Miskatonic Hotel, you head into the parking lot, and waiting there for you is a lovely, pure black... Morris Minor limousine that you've had brought over with you from London. And driving it is your faithful valet. Of course, you brought him along with the car. Go ahead and describe him. He is a little younger. Blonde-haired, uh... His hair is starting to frost around the edges, too. Perhaps in his 40s, he's... Got a little bit of a paunch, but he's neatly tri trimmed, clean-shaven, neatly dressed. <sighs> Has an easy smile. And uh, as he helps Lord Smythe into the car, his hand lingers on his shoulder with a bit more than a little familiarity than is than would be considered proper for a servant and a master. And this faithful servant, what is his name? His name is Colin Ruddy. Colin Ruddy. Alright, sir. Presbyterian's church, you said? He confirms. I did. Not Shall quite I... sure exactly where that is, but I've got a street map here I have. He points to the map folded up next to him. Here, uh... If you want to be on directions, I'll focus on getting you there quick smart, he says, as he hands you the street map. And this isn't the first time you've had to help him with directions. You've taken him many, many times to drive you around foreign cities, and... Well, he's good at driving, he's good at maintaining the car, but... You're always the navigator, and it's because you're good at it. So please, Lord Smythe, go ahead and make a navigate check for me. Am I good at this? Let me see. 
Well, if you consider 20% to be good, let me roll and see what the dice say. It was above the base, so... It is an American city, too. Those are always rather tiresome. Yeah, they drive on the opposite side of the road here. 56 is a failure. So you can choose to push this and roll it again, or you can simply leave it as a failure. I will say that when I ask for navigate or drive rolls, it basically just determines how much time I give you to conduct your investigations before I force you out of the scene. Hmm... Well, Colin is getting used to driving on the wrong side of the road. I'd rather not push it and have something happen to the car, Colin. Yeah. So, at this point, we'll just take the failure and say it takes a dreadfully long time to get there. Yeah. It's, in theory, only a couple of blocks away, but it takes about half an hour until you finally round the corner onto from Sultan Stall onto Boundary Street and see... The Presbyterian Church there, the relatively humble church house, actually. This part of Arkham is quite modern. There's high-rises, modern architecture, cars in the street. But this church house seems like it hasn't been touched in 50-odd years. It looks like the sort of quaint little village parish that you would see in a stereotypical English village. But of course, there's the American flag on a pole at the dangling from the roof to signify that this is indeed not your stereotypical English parish. There's an empty dirt lot next to it, and so your driver pulls the car into the lot Shall I leave the engine running, sir? He says as the car comes to a halt. Lord Her Fosterlin Smythe checks his pocket watch. About how much time before he meets back at the house has agreed upon. At the apartment has agreed upon. Yeah, so... It took you about half an hour to get here, and assuming you get what you need in the church... You're expected to meet with the others in about an hour's time. You might as well turn the engine off. This will either be very short, in which case you'll have to crank fast, or it'll be dreadfully long. You're all right. I'll get back to reading that uh, that Detective Phillips novel I, w I picked up, sir, he says. He puts his feet up on the steering wheel and flips out a pulp detective novel, and you recognise the name on the cover. Kenneth Boothby. Hmm. Well, you'll have to tell me a review all about it later, dear man. Oh, yeah. So far, he's... So far, he's knocked off three birds, two of them at the same time, and he's had a nice route in the back of an horse-drawn carriage. <laughs> hmm. Well... I understand a few more things about the man I'm going to be, have to be working with. Out of the car and Carry on. make your way up to the church house. And there's a set of three stone stairs leading up to a thick set of wooden double doors. There's a knocker on the doors, but it doesn't 
you don't know if you have to use it because somebody's stuck a paper note onto one of the doors that reads in fairly neat handwriting, all are welcome. Hmm. I'll knock nonetheless. It's only polite. It's only polite. So you step up to the door, grab the knocker and knock three times. And then, to your surprise, you hear the sound of the doorknob being turned and the door is pulled open. And fairly short, rotund, jolly-faced man wearing a priest's garb appears before you. He's bald, save for little tufts of grey hair behind each of his ears. He looks you up and down and he says, Oh, I'm terribly sorry, but we're not having any more services until tomorrow night. That's understandable. I'm not here for service. If you'd I just like a place need to... Of guidance. Now, if you just wish to uh, commune with the Lord, you're welcome. All are welcome here. Many, ter- many have turned from the path in these troubling times, but uh, the Lord will accept any who wish to enter his home. He gestures for you to enter, and you step past him into the humble church house. It isn't decorated particularly well. There's a single stained glass window featuring Jesus Christ at the very back overlooking the church and dowsing the rows of simple wooden pews with multicoloured light. There's an altar at the back of the church and a very thick Bible sits upon it, currently open. There's a door beyond that leading to the priest's bedroom and living area and the door is currently open, indicating that your knock summoned the priest from his meditations. Please, go ahead, uh, take a seat wherever you like. Would Thank you, you, do you, Father? Oh, uh... Father O'Sullivan, he says, holding out a hand. Ah, Irish. There's hesitation. The smile is perhaps a little strained as Lord Fosselin shakes his hand. Shaking his hands is like crunching up autumn leaves in your fingers. His skin is hard and leathery. Do you pray alone, Mr... In this case, I would welcome the company. Well, very well. I... I will help you commune with the Lord. He takes a seat next to you in one of the pews. Uh, Might I know who I have the pleasure of praying with today, Mr... Uh, my card. And he flicks it over and hand, flicks one out and hands it over. He takes Herald. the card. Just Harold here, I suppose. He reads the he name on the on card. quite a while ago. Not often we see faces like yours here in Arkham. In fact, we got that other man in town, uh, Mr. Anderson, the poor soul who's lost his child. I don't suppose you're acquainted with him. 
I am, in fact. Is one of the reasons I was coming here. And one of the reasons I feel the need to pray. Do you happen to know his servant as well? Emily, Emily Langford. Oh, yes, uh, Miss Langford. She's been here a few times. Not a regular by any means. I understand she's not local to Arkham, but I do appreciate that she visits our flock whenever she's here. It shows that she is pious and... Well, a pious person should always visit the Lord's house, even when it is not their usual church. Well then, do you know what draws her here? If you'll forgive my asking, besides the faith, of course. As I understand it, I believe... He hesitates for a moment. I'm sorry, I... I shouldn't speak ill of people, especially considering everything that's going on. I'll no. just simply say that Miss Langford is a pious soul and leave it at that. I'm going to ask you to speak, sir, because, frankly, I'm here to pray for her. Hmm. I'm here to pray for her because she is a liar. I would like you to make a persuade check, and you may add temporarily 10% to your skill because you have targeted his piety. Alright. We'll see how this goes. I'll also allow you to do anthropology if you'd like to focus on the religion. I believe I'm actually worse at that. So I'll settle with my Persuade, currently up to 40, with the boost he gave me, that's an 87. Mm. Would you like to push that, perhaps, by focusing on her, on her soul and how you wish to save that poor boy from damnation? Actually, I'd like to subtly try to shift it to Intimidation, targeted toward her. As he mm. explains, I am here to pray for her because she is a liar. Yeah, go ahead, make an she, intimidate. She insisted that she was coming to the church. However, she left it an hour far earlier than the service. And when she has found that fact is going to be accounted against her, in the absence of any other explanation, I shudder to think. 35 made it by 5. I shudder to think what's going to happen to her. I did not consider that she was a liar, says Father O'Sullivan. In this instance, but, at least. But indeed, if you believe her soul is in danger, well, then I will tell you all that I know. What I know is that Miss Langford, when she has been here on occasion, has, well, I will say that her faith is more so paying lip service to the people, to the tenets of our belief. You see, Miss Langford, although she is a nanny in her college days, fancied herself something of a journalist, a reporter, a town gossip. 
She's described to me one time in great detail how her family could not afford her tuition, and so she was forced to head into hospitality. But she still has that nose for gossip, and, well, I'll be frank with you, this church is no stranger to scandal. I do not know why she would have left much earlier than she needed to. Perhaps she had more business to attend to. I, I do not doubt that she intended to attend the service, and having the young baby Anderson with her would have uh, granted her much more credibility and much more of an opportunity to engage in idle gossip with the other parishioners. Indeed. Children always loosen the tongues of those who are distractible by them. I see. This makes sense to me. It's possible that her, her lie was merely to gain some minor advantage to her own account. Do you believe that God tests us? I believe so, Mr. Smythe. I believe he is conducting a test now, but it is not of me, and I believe I may be the agent in question conducting a test of another. And to that end, sir, unless there's anything else you can tell me about Miss Emily, or anything else that comes to mind. I wish to know, sir, what you believe is the role of the poor baby Anderson in this test. It's hard to say, but given the lack of response, it may be entirely possible that he was a target of opportunity. Rather than the sacrificial lamb Of course, our me. Lord does give us the free will to choose whether we do right or wrong. I believe you've chosen the right path by telling me this. If nothing else, it shall help exonerate her name, should the worst occur. What is your appearance, Lord Smythe? He used to be quite handsome once. But he still gives cuts a fairly neat figure. Forty-five. Forty-five. Yeah, I'll say you've made a fairly decent impression on him. And he's silent for a moment as he considers what to say next. And then he smiles and he says, I believe if you have the interests of this boy at heart, then I can trust you. There was a scandal in this church. And I believe that this is what Miss Langford was trying to uncover whenever she came here. Something to do with the with my predecessor, Father Snowden, I believe. I don't know exactly what happened. I know that there was some scandal involving him and a 
child or something like that. And the poor soul ended up killing himself. He'll pay for it in purgatory now. But then I was brought in. I'm originally from New York, you see. And I learned all of this after the fact. I do know the name of the child that was involved in the scandal. His name is Daniel Ames. I understand that Daniel Ames went missing for several weeks. About five or six years ago. He was found in a feral state in the woods outside of town. And... I don't understand the specifics of it, but apparently he was babbling on about something that Father Snowden had done to him. The poor boy is, uh, unfortunately sequestered away in Arkham Institution right now. Still there to this day, for his parents unfortunately passed while he was missing. I think of this case of this missing child and well I can't help but compare it to what happened with Daniel Ames there's a shadow over his face as he said his fa as he accounted that his fa his parents are dead I see you may have been quite a more help than you now and, the, uh, thank you. My predecessor left something behind when he went to the Lord. A painting that he had up in the bedroom. I could not stand the thing, so I had it taken down. It's been in storage ever since. I don't know how it could possibly be related, but as I relay these things to you, something stirs in my mind, and I feel compelled to at least mention it. Well, I was planning on making a small donation to the church in any case. He says opening his wallet and taking out a handful of gold dollars. Could I perhaps purchase that painting from you, given that it don't like gazing upon it. I could remove the you. I could spare you that particular trouble. I'm gonna assume that your credit rating is above 30. <laughs> F yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, a donation would be appreciated, and, well, I won't say no to seeing the ghastly thing gone, he says. Very well. Come with me, he says rising from the pew and leading you towards the bedroom at the back of the church. He leads Tap. you down. Yep, go ahead. Tack, talk, talk, goes the cane on the floor. Yep, as you follow him. Follow him down a narrow hallway, past a very threadbare bedroom, past a little kitchen and a bathroom, and then right at the end of the hallway, there's a wooden door that leads into what is presumably a broom closet. Father O'Sullivan sighs as he leans forwards, grips the handle of the door and pulls it open, and as the door slowly opens, the creaking echoes down the hallway. 
and the painting is propped up against the wall on the other side. And as you see it, I would like you, Lord Smythe, to roll Here sanity for me. Roll it yeah. as if it were a skill. Oh, yes. Ah, first one of the night. <sighs> but as you roll sanity, I will say that as the bond rules are in effect, if at any time you don't want to take a sanity hit, you can instead choose to project it onto a bond. This means that you remind yourself of what you're fighting for, and instead of rolling the sanity, you are counted as passing, but instead you decrease your bond score by 1d4. Well, we're not doing that. 42 under 70. 42 under 70. I'd like you to lose 1d3 sand, please. Yeah, sure. Two points. Two points. Something rattles in your psyche. A shiver runs down your spine and instinctually you find yourself starting to back away. The priest gives you a glance shaking his head and smiling, commiserating with you. You gaze upon the painting and see what appears to be a particularly realistic water painting of a dimly lit cavern, walls dripping with water and viscous green mucus it's either underwater or on the edge of an underground shore as the artist has rendered waves dancing rippling on the roof and walls of the cavern and there standing in a circle in the center of the cavern are what are obviously children at least 10 or 20 of them their faces hidden under waterlogged hair, all of them stark naked, their skin white and pale with cold and damp. And in the very centre of the circle is an impossibly tall, thin man whose entire form is shrouded in shadow, save for his face, which has bulbous fish-like eyes and a smiling gaping maw of razor-sharp teeth. And Lord Fosterland Smythe sneers a sneer that turns into a cold grin and through clenched teeth he says, Found you. You, you recognize it, sir? Says the priest. Ah. Perhaps I'm going to need to run this by an expert or two. I've never right, quite... It is ghastly. There is something about it that's never agreed with me on a deep level. He says, I will be glad to see no more of it. 20 golden dollars go in the donation box. And, uh, unless the priest has further business. The painting is wrapped up carefully and brought back out to the car. I will leave you to uh, secure it yourself, he says. 
I would like to return to my Bible study. But remember, if you think at all that what's happening now is a repeat of what has happened before, Daniel Ames is still alive at Arkham Institution. Oh, yes. And we shall see if the ears have loosened his tongue or given mm. more form to his words. Thank you. Lord you be with helped. you. You may have helped more than you know. He places a hand on your shoulder as he passes you by, enters the bedroom, and slowly shuts the door behind him. When your, when your valet sees you carrying the wrapped painting under your arm out to the car, his mouth drops open. Oh. What have you got there? Something perfectly ghastly. It shan't be displayed in the sitting room, dear Colin. Well, then what'd you buy it for? Uh, well, it's what you have no doubt... What the that horrible novel you're reading would no doubt call a clue. Misspelled horribly, of course. Probably with an EW if I'm wagering. Oh, well... I won't deign to unwrap it then, sir. All right. Uh, where to next? Back to the apartments. I believe we shall rendezvous with the others there. Very well. I'll d I'll do my best to get you there on time. And oh, I don't think you'd like this book very much, sir. He says, looking down at the book with a boyish grin on his face. Chapter I just got up to, he chins a girl while he's being dragged along the road tied to a horse, he does. After having met Mr. Boothby even briefly, I would have to say that his work is everything I expected of it and less. Three pages just describing some bird's legs. Hmm. Well. <sighs> Must probably paid by the word count. Shall we go? Of course, sir. Make yourself comfortable. He turns the crank on the front of the car and then dives into the driver's seat. Let's get going. And we will cross over to Alfredo. So, Alfredo. Yes, you sir. find you find a phone book, a phone booth. First thing out of the hotel. You walk about a block down the street, find the nearest phone booth, and drop a dime. You phone Harlem, and drop the code words, and little seemingly meaningless phrases to get on the line to the commission. You're going to explain to the families that they ain't going to be happy with having a repeat of the Lindbergh nonsense. I'd like you to go ahead for me and roll me either your education to do a no check to this will rep this represents, you know, the your background knowledge, which would be the easiest way to represent getting in touch with the underworld, I think, or you can go ahead and make an intimidate check if you just want to 
you know, threaten the poor young foot soldier on the end of the line and demand they get you in touch with your boss? Uh, I'll, I'll take the education role. Can you please roll it for me, please? Yep, what's your education? 60, six, zero. That is a 54, that is a pass. Wait, 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 says the guy on the end of the phone. So you're down in Arkham. You're down in Arkham and you want to you, you wanna get in touch with the boss up here in New York. Like, I don't even understand what anything going on in New York's got to gonna have to do with, you know, the sticks yeah, down there. And you're answering telephones and I'm out on the road. You put me in, I've got to talk with either Lucky or one of his boys. There's a click. Move it. There's a click and then suddenly a voice says... Alfredo, this is Lucky. What do you got for me? Hey, boss, I got news that you, uh, you, you, you may want me to be, I came down here because a friend is in a bit of a, well, an acquaintance, I owe him. Boss, we yeah, yeah, yeah. this would be, this would be that, that, that Boothby guy, right? You know, with, with Kenneth Boothby, with, with the, yeah, 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 with yeah, the yeah, department yeah. store. There's a local industrialist down here out in New York whose baby has been snatched yesterday. It's just like Lindbergh. All over again. You know what it was like with the cops and the feds. You want right, me right. to look into it down here and find out who's done it? Yeah, I got some contacts. Uh, I can get you in touch with a local speakeasy. Uh, I gotta ask, though, why are you so keen on getting this kid back? Oh, I know you were shit about getting this kid. Only here helping out, you know, just looking into some stuff. Some unfinished business with that shipwreck I was telling you about. But I... obviously none of the families want to repeat uh, the fence crawling up our ass all over New uh, all, all over New Jersey. Look, look, all I know about this shipwreck is you were was off your rocker. You probably had too much to drink that night, but I do remember you said something about gold coins, and look, if there's a chance of the family getting a line on those things, sure, I'll put you in touch with whoever you gotta be in touch with. But you gotta be careful, okay? Look, I know most of the speakeasies down there are uh, handled by uh, a guy named O'Bannon. And also this other gang uh, run by a guy called Sinetti. So, uh, we're, we're having a beef with Sinetti at the moment. So, uh, you wanna focus on O'Bannon. Uh, alright, look, you got a pen and paper, Andy? Yeah, I got Alright, look, he rattles off an address. He says, you want to go and knock at the back door and, uh, just drop my name. O'Bannon owes me a favor. And whatever you do, don't mention Sinetti, because I know that he's got his goons on the streets there and he's looking to make beef. So watch yourself. Do you want me to sort of take care of the Sinetti situation? Eh, you know, maybe that'll be something for a rainy day. But for now, let's focus on this thing that's gonna get us paid. If I if I got an inside line saying 
Mr. Nettie is stirring up the feds in our backyard. Do you want me to just take him out? If it's opportune, sure. But for now, you know, my eyes are gleaming at the thought of more of those gold coins. So we'll focus on this kid, okay? All right, look, I, uh, I got to fit a guy for some cement shoes, so I'll talk to you later. There's a click, Danny. There's a click and you're left saying goodbye to dead air. Yep, I immediately dial a couple of false numbers. Yep. And... And then I am going to head to the address. Yeah. Do you have a car, Alfredo? Me? Yeah. heavens, no. No, so you're going to take it. So you're going to take a taxi. So... I'd like you to roll your credit rating, and we'll see if you get a taxi. Quick, smart, or if it's gonna, or if you're gonna be waiting on the side of the road for a while. Well, we never actually discussed my credit rating. Oh, I, well. I had mentioned to you my income and what Matthew's yeah, used to get. So I don't know. I put a number in it. I put fifty because I yeah yeah just keep fifty. Just roll that. Uh, can you make the roll, please? Yeah, I'll make the roll for you. Twelve! Ooh, nice. So, Alfredo, you've got your violin with you, because you always do, and... There are people jostling on the side of the road trying to get a taxi so that they can get ahead of the coming late afternoon rush, and... A lot of them seem to be having trouble. The taxis stop, pick up... The people who look like stockbrokers or bankers, who look like they've got, you know, a place to be and look like they're important. You stand out. You're a little man with a big violin and the scowl on your face tells people that you're a mean son of a bitch. So it doesn't take long for one of the taxis to park up in front of you. The cabbie sticks his head out the window and he says, Yeah, get in the car. Where you want to go? I get in the car. And I give him the address. And I slide him an obscenely large tip. And say, of course, you never saw me, did you? Of course not. And I'll get you there quick smart, he says. And he does. Cabbies know Arkham like the back of their hand. He knows all the best shortcuts, all the side streets that get him out of the mid-afternoon chaos. And before you know it, the car stops in front of what looks like a normal, normal all-American diner on East Church Street. It's wedged between two triple-story apartment tenements, and there's a narrow alleyway that runs along the side of the diner, goes down a flight of stairs, and leads to a metal door at the very back. Will you knock on the door? Uh, the one that I was, that was described? Hell yes. Yeah. Knock on the door, and there's a click, and a little panel slides open. A stern-looking face looks you up and down and says, Who sent you? My boss. 
Yeah, we all got bosses. Who's yours? My boss is Lucky Luciano. Lucky Luciano. And who's your boss? My boss is Mr. O'Bannon, and... The panel slides shut, and you hear from the other side of the door, Hey! Boss! Guy says Lucky Luciano! Yeah? You sure? Alright, I'll let him in. hear the sound of creaking metal as the door is pushed open and you're ushered into the speakeasy on the other side. The speakeasy isn't open yet, not at this time of the day. The inside is dimly lit. The tables and the tables are covered in white cloths. The table, the chairs stacked upside down on top of them. There's a bar running along the back of the room with at least a hundred differently coloured whiskey bottles on display, but no one's manning it. Aside from the guy at the door, there's a couple of goons standing around, eyeing you, arms folded, and you can make out the shape of their sidearms clearly visible under their under their vest. Boss is in the. I yep, just go say ahead. to the guy, my boss's name is not one you want to ever yell out loud again. You understand me? Intimidate check for me, please. Oh, I've got almost none. <laughs> I thought, yeah, there's realistic character creation. I yeah, know. it is. I think you'll find it a 15. <laughs> I wasn't actually trying to intimidate him. I was no. just trying to say, you know, don't do this. You don't really want to be shot. I know, I know. But I'm going to make you roll for it just to see how okay, he reacts. I'm the roll with that. Yep, I will roll that for you. It's a 38. Would you like to push that? It's not going to be really consequential. <laughs> he just scoffs at you and he says, You ain't in the Big Apple no more. We'll yell whoever's name we want and you'll be well to remember that when you're talking to the boss. You're being allowed the time of day because the boss... Our boss owes your boss a favor. You walking out of here has got nothing to do with that. The only agreement that was made is that our boss would talk to you. So head on through that door behind the bar. And knock on the door of the office. Yeah, I walk. Walk through until I find O'Bannon. Head down a hallway and pass a storage room laden with crates of bootleg liquor and come to the office, quotation marks, at the end of the corridor. It's what looks like a bathroom that's been repurposed as an office somebody's smashed the urinals off the wall and taken the toilet cubicles down and they've laid a rug of carpet down on the cold concrete and there's a desk on the carpet and what who could only be mr o'bannon is behind the desk as soon as you enter, he leans forward, screwing his face up in a mask of intense bloodlust and curiosity. And as he gestures for you to take a seat in front of his desk, 
He smiles, reaches underneath the desk, pulls out a claw hammer, and then as you as you wait for him to speak, he reaches into his breast pocket, pulls out a clear plastic bag of walnuts, and one by one pulls the walnuts out of the bag and smashes them with the hammer into pulp in front of you. He smashes one more into pulp, and then he scowls and he says, Alright, I got Lucky's call. The fuck you want? Thank God all day. You know about this business with the industrialist, yeah? Missing kid, yeah. If you think we got anything to do with it, you're wrong. We don't think you got anything to do with it. You ain't got rocks in your head. That's why we are so happy to be in business with you. What we're concerned about... Well, you know what happened when Lindbergh's baby got taken. You got any insight as to who's dumb enough to do this? Do you think it's like sending this guy a message, a punishment maybe? Because there ain't been no ransom. Go ahead and make me either a persuade or a charm check. I don't think he's got the ability to do either of those things either. In that uh, his persuade is going to be 10, and I can't... Oh, well, okay, his charm is a massive 25. Alright, I'll roll for you. Thank you, sir. Ooh, a 20, you pass. Mmm. You know, I thought the same thing myself, says O'Bannon as he smashes another walnut into pulp. I thought maybe Sinetti's goons had something, but, uh, something to do with it. But, you know, even Sinetti ain't got that many Atlas rocks in his head. So I put my ear to the ground, and before I tell you, what are you planning on doing about this? You're gonna go after the guy who did it, knock him off, bring the kid back, get a fat reward? I think it's gonna be dependent on the situation. It's going to be what... Yeah, I can't... I, I don't know. It's going to depend on the situation. Do you got an, an, an inline as to who's done this? I might have an idea for you. But I ain't putting my ass on the line and having it possibly come back to bite me without getting anything in return. You understand? Now, I understand that you're... You got a line to this uh, Mr. Anderson guy, and he's pretty rich, and I don't know what he's planning to do in Arkham, but if I give you this info and you get his kid back, you're gonna leverage that and talk him into a 5% cut donated graciously to Mars All-American Diner, you understand? If I get anything, sure. But I ain't... I'm looking into this for, for Lucky. But I ain't here representing the family. You, you got me? You feel me? I got you. All right, look. So if you want... You don't know my name. You might have heard of me professionally. I'm the drummer boy. Yeah. 
the drummer boy, and as you drop the name, he smiles. Ah, yeah. So you help me out. I might take a call in the future if you uh, have a need. You got me? You feel me? What do you think, uh... Reckon you could knock off Sanetti if I told you to? He hasn't pissed off the families enough. You know somebody like Sanetti, the Dons are all gotta say okay to that one. I mean, you know I gotta follow the rule. I can... I can get the go-ahead, I just need somebody to do the job. Oh, you get the go-ahead, that's easy. Alright. You get the go-ahead, so I'm, so I'm right? If I do this? Sure, no problem. I'll, I'll give that swap. I'll give you a call in a few weeks. Here's my part of the deal. So, I put my ear to the ground, and I hear that there's this guy, and he's looking for kid... People to do abductions, kidnappings, things like that, and guy pops up out of nowhere. No one knows where he came from. He's calling himself the father, right? You know, like a priest or something. And he's paying people in pure gold. I ain't talking Big coins. Pure gold. Not even coins. Gold ingots. Like, someone must have got a... A bunch of jewelry. Fucking melted it down. And now they got, you know, these gold... Little gold ingots. And he's splashing them around. And, you know... Well, you know, most people think, you know, guy turns up, he's got no reputation, he's splashing gold around, doesn't matter how much he's paying, you know, that's too good to be true. You know, he could be a cop, he could be a fed, lots of feds sniffing around with all the bootlegging and smuggling. Well, I heard that there's two specifically that were stupid enough to answer. Uh, they go by the names of Castle and Talamentes. Okay, now, Castle, he's a big brute of a guy, he's dumb muscle, but Talamantes, now, Talamantes was in the war, you understand, great war, he was doing shit behind enemy lines, he knows how to sneak around, he knows how to do stuff quiet-like, okay, you know, they used to say that he would cut a man's head off without the guy even getting a chance to scream, okay, so Castle and Talamentes are working with this guy, the father. Now we don't know what they were doing and who they was planning on grabbing, but then we know that this uh this Anderson boy went missing shortly after. So you know, you put you put uh two and two together and you know and you get five or whatever. Yeah, you gotta you got addresses for this uh, castle and Talamentes? Hmm. Yeah, I do, in fact. Uh, somewhere east of town. Uh, I don't know exactly where. They shift their eye out a lot. It's some somewhere on either Aylesbury Street or River Street. Somewhere near the river. Yeah. They got a house there. The house is abandoned, doesn't look like anyone lives in it, but they've been working out of there for the last year or so. I don't got the exact number, I just know the street 
one of two streets. You're gonna have to search them yourself if you wanna track them down, you know? Yeah, he jotted down the, the details. Alright, you got anything else I can help you with? You got me a solid. Which way? Alright, good. Now you fuck off, I'll call you in a few weeks. Oh, and uh, tell Mikey out there to pour you a drink, you know, gift from me to you, you know. Celebrate the start of a beautiful business relationship. You mind if I uh, take a whole bottle? Buy a bottle from you. And tell me, will you get your, de your deliveries on time? There been any fuck. problems with any of the product? Who the fuck you think I am? I want to make sure that you're getting what you ordered. Yeah, look, I got a few people need uh, convincing product-wise. I'll call you about that too. Sure, take a bottle, one of the green ones, don't touch the fucking blue stuff. Because that, that brings the money in, okay? Yeah, no problem. Alright, get out of here, he says. He smashes the last walnut to pulp with his hammer. And gestures with beefy, with a beefy hand for you to exit the room. Head out. <laughs> and we will cross over to Connie. So Connie, I don't believe you have a car. Uh, that's probably wouldn't would you? <laughs> no. I. Uh. So you're. Well, you know what. The paper office is on Walnut Street, about a block away from the police station, so you could quite easily walk there from the Miskatonic Hotel, but I will ask you to make a navigate check. Uh, that is only a 10%, so we'll see how this goes. Uh, nope, it's a 77. <laughs> 77. Yeah. Don't normally walk this part of town. You have a very, very conspicuous look. And your line of work means that you don't want to be anywhere near people who know where the police station is or seem well-to-do enough that they know what's going on. So it takes you a few minutes to actually find the offices for the Arkham Advertiser. It's a small double-story red brick block, essentially, wedged in the middle of... wedged at the end of a side street in between two municipal buildings. And you wouldn't even know that this building is anything special were it not for the faded billboard reading Arkham Advertiser up on the edge of the roof. A, a little bell rings as you push open the glass door and step into the dimly lit reception building. It's clear they don't get many guests. There's enough room for you to stand and then right in front of you there's a reception desk and the wall is lined with framed copies of old newspapers each of them published before you were born 
The reception desk is unmanned, but a bell did ring somewhere in the deep recesses of the building. Would you like to wait? Uh, yeah, she'll wait for a little bit, see if someone shows up. Yeah. Eventually, a door at the end of a hallway behind the reception desk opens, and a muscular man wearing a grey vest and green tie over slacks emerges. He eyes you up and down, and he says, Well... You look like you got a story about you. Only, we only publish respectable, credible things. So I've said this to your kind before, and I'll say it again. No lights in the sky, no Bigfoot, no cryptids. But if you got a real tip for us, go ahead. Oh, no, no, no story. I was actually, I actually came here to ask, uh, Hoping I could ask you a few questions. Yeah, what about? Says the guy. I run a tight ship here. We gotta get this evening's edition done. Get it to presses before four o'clock. I ain't really got time to be wagging lips with random dames off the street. Uh, I was hoping I could uh, find some find out some of the information you know about that the poor Anderson child that got kidnapped. Anderson child? Yeah, we ran a story about it in yesterday's paper. What you read is what you get. Now, if you were a cop or an investigator or something like that, maybe I'd tell you more, but... Look, if you need a copy of the paper, feel free to pick one up on the way out down the street. It's only five cents a copy. Well, I may not be directly a police officer. I we are working. I am working with them at the moment. With Mr. Anderson. Yes, and the uh, policeman whose name I forgot. Uh yeah, Asa Nichols. <laughs> yeah. Make me a persuade or a fast talk check, please. I'll go with fast talk because that is significantly better. Oh, uh, there's a 28 on fast talk, which. Where is it? There's a hard pass. So, what you tell him isn't technically true. Yeah. You don't know that you have Chief Nichols' blessing. But you drop his name, and that seems to be enough for this clearly overworked editor or chief of staff or whatever he is. So he sighs and he says, Yeah? I don't know what else I can tell you. We printed everything that we were told by the cops. But I do know we've done stories on Mr. Anderson before and things like that. So, uh maybe you'd like to have a look in the archives see if you find something. Oh, Mr. Anderson has made headlines before? Indeed. Guy like him, electronics, factories, popping up all over the place. You know, he makes all the, his company makes all the vacuum tubes. You know, guy like him, 
occasionally has scandals, but, you know, we also get tapped to do a lot of puff pieces and things like that. You know, keeping him happy is going to be good for the city in the long run. Oh, well, since you so graciously offered, I would gladly, I would love to take a look through the archives. Yeah, look, uh, see, you caught me at a busy time. I would have sat down and talked to you, help you figure this out. But, you know, we got some stories that we got to finish. We got to finish the typeset and all that junk. So, uh, I'm inclined to just tell you, head down the hall, second door on the left, uh, light switch is on your left as you come in, and, uh, you just look up around, take your time, and when you're done, make sure you shut the door behind you, okay? Oh, of course, and uh, thank you. Thank you most kindly for your assistance. He holds out his hand. Uh, I'm Tim Smith, by the way, editor here at The Advertiser, and you are? Uh, Connie Simpkins. Connie Simpkins. Tell you what. You're investigating this case, and uh, you uh, happen to get some insider info that the cops don't want to share. I'll make it worth your while to hit me up for an interview, okay? Oh, I will certainly keep that in mind. Also, we uh, we got a column we do once a month, you know, stuff about ghoulies and ghosts, you know, kooky shit like that, and... Uh, he looks at the talisman you're wearing, and he says, I, uh, I don't mean to sound offensive or nothing, it's mainly for entertainment, but, you know, if you do that for me, maybe we can, uh, you know, put your name in the column, might drum up some business for you. Well, that might certainly be helpful with the future clients. All right, you just remember. Uh, here's my card. Okay, no more chin wag, and I gotta head upstairs. Second door on the left. Off you go. And so you squeeze behind the counter, navigating piles of newspapers, and as he barrels through the door and begins making his way upstairs, his foot falls heavy on the staircase. Thump, 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 thump. You make your way to the little metal door with the placard on it reading Archives. You turn the handle and step into a pitch black room. You fumble around on your left and feel a chain dangling from the roof. You pull it and... Bright white light fills the room, revealing... At least 12 aisles of old newspapers, metal filing cabinets, folders upon folders of unpublished drafts and retracted stories. And it looks like, aside from them being arranged by month and year, there isn't really any particular way to find what you're looking for, aside from just browsing and hoping something catches your eye. Maybe if you'd arrived earlier, the editor could have helped you, but you're on your own. So you can go ahead and make a library use check for me, or an occult check if you like. Well, 
go to the library, that's slightly better. Seventeen luck to push that down into a success. Sixteen luck to push it into a success. And now that that is a success, I'll also ask you to make a luck check because you did the stay on the case home action, and that means you can get something cool here if you pass yeah. a luck check. Uh, no, it's an 80. So an 80? Alright, I'll give you the bare minimum and not the extra stuff. So, <laughs> the archives are not really set up in a way that it's easy to browse, but there's enough of an attempt to catalogue them that you're able to at least pick a place and start. You start skimming the archives for the last few years, searching for any references to the name Anderson or anything else you'd recognise. It takes ages, an hour, two hours. The clock on the wall ticks over. And it's coming up to nearly 5pm before you finally uncover something of note. And I'm going to put a picture of it in our bear Rodeo. It's the one article you can find listing Anderson's name. The headline says, Arkham announced as possible manufacturing site. Anderson Electronics looks to New England. Charles Anderson, president of Anderson Industries, has hinted that he now considers Arkham possibly the best place to locate his new electronic parts manufacturing plant. The proposed facility will produce vacuum tubes and other radio parts to supply the new and burgeoning industry. The plant would employ as many as 120 people upon opening, expanding to 200 over the next two years. Anderson hopes to secure government contracts, supplying parts for military wireless equipment. The factory would be located along the south bank of the Miskatonic River, just east of the city. Local financier Mr. Robert Beckworth has been negotiating with Mr. Anderson over the last few months, promoting Arkham as the best site available. Other locations that have been considered include Houston, Texas and Charleston, South Carolina. Mr. Anderson is a graduate of the Harvard School of Business, class of 1912. He served in the US Army during the World War at the rank of captain. Along with smaller investments, Anderson Industries presently controls a textile factory in New York City, an aircraft plant in Connecticut, and substantial oil interests in West Texas. The Andersons will be visiting Arkham next week as guests of Mr. Beechworth. The couple currently resides in New York City with their two children, four-year-old daughter Margaret and one-year-old son, Carter. This article is followed by another, which appears to be a puff piece on Anderson Industries, essentially listing all of their subsidiaries. And it seems quite interesting to you that Anderson Industries has several government contracts, putting Mr. Anderson himself in quite close quarters with several influential politicians. You continue searching through the papers, 
And because you did the stay on the case action, you also find something else that catches your eye. No roll required for this one, though. If you pass a luck check, you would have gotten more. Your eyes light up as you find a paper dated six years ago. So old that it's hard to read. The ink is fading off the yellowed paper and as you pull it out of the shelf and hold it up to the bright white light, I'd like you to make an own language check to try to decipher it. Own language. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to attempt to push it so I can re-roll that, can't I? Yep, you can re-roll it. Yes. Where are we? Own language. Yeah, let's go for it. Stop it. Uh, I'm going to burn a little more luck, so I'll use 14 luck to push that down into a success. 14 luck is a success. All right. The headline reads Abandoned automobile identified as missing pastors. Minister Harold Snowden missing and presumed dead. Gloucester, Massachusetts. A Ford Model A found abandoned near the shore north of Gloucester yesterday has been positively identified as that of Mr. Harold Snowden, formerly minister of the Arkham First Baptist Church. Mr. Snowden had been head of the church for almost seven years when he retired suddenly last month following allegations of misconduct lodged against him by some members of the congregation. Police have verified reports that a suicide note written by Snowden was found in the vehicle. Although the actual contents of the note have not been released, inside sources say that the man forswore all charges made against him but could no longer suffer himself to live with the community believing such things about him. Snowden left no family or known heirs. I would now like you to make a sand check for me, please. And you do have the option of projecting it onto your bonds, if you like. Uh, not this time. Not this time. Go ahead, make a sand check. Oh, damn, that's an eight. <laughs> an eight? So, Ooh, nice. So that will... That will be a sand loss of 1d3, then, in that case. I lose two. Feverishly, you pour through the archives, trying to find anything more about Snowden, your curiosity, intrigued, that flame lit within you. And you find, in a newspaper... Dated a year previous to this one. An unpublished story pulled from the paper at the last moments. Detailing the scandal that resulted in Snowden's retirement. 
And that involves the death of a young girl, five years old, by the, la by the name of Melissa Jones. She attended private Bible study with Father Snowden every Sunday. One-on-one -on -one classes. Her parents reported that she had begun to speak of things that Father Snowden showed her that unsettled her. In particular, a strange painting that he hung up in his living quarters. After she'd be... After the parents registered these concerns and brought them to the attention of the church, Melissa disappeared. She was found a month later when her rotten, emaciated corpse washed up on the shores of the island, a small patch of land in the middle of Miskatonic River. Her veins and bones waterlogged unusually with salt water, which was not at all congruent with the Miskatonic River being a freshwater body of water. In addition, her body had been feasted on by several forms of sea life. Her face had been completely gnawed off by whatever had found her corpse before it washed ashore. And her lungs, in addition to salt water, were filled with an unidentified white mucus. Due to the advanced state of decay that the body was found in, the exact cause of death was never determined, but her death was ruled drowning as a result of foul play. Father Snowden was, of course, determined to be the main suspect, but was later cleared. Hmm. And with that, is there anything else you'd like to look for, Connie? Uh... Well, I guess with this new information, she'd try to see if she could use any time to find anything else on Father Snowden. Yeah. So go ahead for me and make a history check, please. There it is. Push it. Oh, there we go. Uh, doo -doo -doo. It was history, yeah? Yep, history. Cool, so I had to push it to re-roll, but that then gave me a 19, which is a hard success. 
He finds it with surprising ease, right there in the aisle dedicated to 1916, exactly 10 years ago. A front-page article featuring a smiling picture of Father Snowden standing in front of the Presbyterian church house in a freshly laundered priest's robe. The article is congratulating him on being assigned as the newest priest in Arkham, welcoming him to the community. The article contains a short biography describing his training at a priest college up north, his particular interests within his, within his sect, in this case, In this case, he seem, he reports that he's interested in bridging the gap between what Christians would call heathens and those who are devout. And your heart skips a beat as you finish the article, and it reads, Before attending... The Northern College of Priests. Harold Snowden was born and bred local in the Miskatonic Valley, growing up in dreary Innsmouth. Oh, so it's a local. Hmm, from Innsmouth, no less. We will now cross, for the final scene of this session, back to the group who went to the police station. So I presumed, Baxter, that you, Boothby, and Ruth would head to Washington Street and begin to canvas it now that you learned that that was Miss Langdon's most likely route. Uh, yes. Hmm. So, it's late in the afternoon when you arrive on Washington Street. Begin canvassing the area, stopping and talking to passers-by, trying to get any evidence that anyone had seen Miss Langdon and the missing baby. And depending on how you would like to do this, I'd like you to nominate one of your group to be the person who does most of the canvassing. Okay, when you're saying canvassing... I mean, you know, just chatting up the locals, asking if they saw anything, stirring up conversation, seeing what shakes out. Do you think think that should be Ruth? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a Ruth thing. Yeah. I will say I think... Boothby has a 70 in Fast Talk. Shall we split the job? Yeah, if you want. Or we sure. could go together and good cop, bad cop. Yeah, sure. So in that, that one. in that case, I would ask Ruth to make a persuade check and Boothby to make a Fast Talk. Sure, <laughs> and while I'm doing that, Ruth is uh, rather excited. She's sort of cheering. She's never done a... She's never canvassed anything before. Yeah, doing police work. She feels like she's doing something exciting. She passes. Just a pass. passes. 
pass and Boothby passes. So Baxter, Baxter follows along and he's the one who points out people and says, oh, maybe you should ask her or maybe you should ask him or just step into that shop there, see if anyone saw anything. And Ruth puts on, is there a particular persona that Ruth puts on as she does this? Um, oh. Okay, so she's going to be asking, like, if anyone's seen anything, if anyone knows any details, right? Yeah. So she's just going to be, like, bubbly, happy-go-lucky? Yeah. Yeah, I think she would. Like, acting as if she's gossiping about the news at first, and, oh, what did you hear? Oh, well, I thought... Yeah, exactly, exactly. And Boothby... How about yes. you, in that case, if you want, I'll allow you to substitute your persuade for an art craft check. Because I assume you have acting in that. Um, I do. It, do you want me to roll again? If you want to, you can. You might get something extra out of it. Ooh, yeah, I do. I get a, uh, that's a critical pass. Ah, see, much better. And Boothby, how do you go about it, working with Ruth? He's definitely bad copping it, where he's going to push, like, a little bit more if he feels like someone's not giving information that they know. He's more likely to kind of directly say to someone, I think you're not telling the truth, or surely you have something else that you can say. I understand the female brain is fickle and you might not remember, but I insist. Must have a case of, like, sudden onset hysteria or something. Yeah. So... The process takes several hours, and I'll be honest, most of the people you talk to don't have much to say. They know what's in the newspapers, they know what the police have publicly said, but either they weren't there on the day in question, or they simply don't remember, or they blow you off. Some of them take considerable offence to Boothby. There's one woman who looks as if she's on the verge of maybe divulging something that might be useful because she stops for a moment and looks at Ruth and says, Actually, come to think of it. And then Boothby leans in and says, Now I expect you to tell it all and without hysteria, chop chop. Which results in her slamming her purse into Boothby's rib, scoffing, turning away and walking as fast as she can down the street. Okay, let's not try that again. (laughs) By the time you're done, it's late in the afternoon, early evening. The sky above is starting to turn deep pink, streaked with grey. The sun, a bright orange ball hanging on the horizon, peeking out between the buildings. The light glimmering on the glass window panes. Looks as if the entire street is suddenly doused in glitter. And... You find... Someone. Finally. A young man with a bushy moustache. He's holding a Boothby... He's holding a paper bag with the Boothby's logo on it as he walks towards you, and this immediately endears Boothby towards him. And he ends up being fairly friendly and reveals that he had rushed to Boothby's that very morning to pick up one of those new coats for his wife for her birthday. 
he did manage to actually see Miss Langdon and the missing boy. He describes the baby carriage, the same one that's described in the newspaper article. And he says that he saw them heading west down towards Boundary Street. He saw that she was heading towards Boothby's, and he even stopped her to engage her in conversation. She told him that she was stopping into Boothby's to exchange the coat, as the one she'd bought did not fit her. She didn't expect to be in there much longer than ten or so minutes. But the reason she'd left the hotel early according to her, was because she wished to enjoy a quiet stroll through the little park on the corner of Boundary Street. Perhaps stop and feed the pigeons. Give the young boy something to... Give the young boy some fresh air and some entertainment rather than having him cooped up in the hotel suite with his father all day long. And so you thank the bushy man for his time. He nods and he says, I hope you find him. I hope you do. I really hope that kid gets back to his dad safe and sound. And then you turn your attention towards the park on the corner of Boundary Street. Baxter, you're the investigator. So I'd like you to go ahead and make a spot hidden check. Ash, do you have... I've just got base. Oh, I was asking if you had Baxter's character sheet. Alt had oh. to go. Oh, oh, alt. Oh yeah, alts. Oh, yeah. Baxter's, yes, yes, yes. Sorry, I ah, still yeah. get your names mixed Sorry, up. Sorry, just quickly yeah. open that up. Um, Give that's alright, we're about to wrap up. Um, so I... Yeah, if you've got Baxter's sheet, just go ahead and roll that for me. I do. Uh, it is spot hidden. Yep. It's ah, a 75. 75, yep. Ah, uh, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So and 59 overall. 59. So Baxter leads you down the street towards the park and suddenly the street is quiet, empty. Perhaps it's because the park is almost like a little slice of the primeval Massachusetts wilderness preserved. A civilization grew around it. This little park is off out of the way the very edge of Boundary Street, away from the banks and the stock firms and the department stores. And it's almost deserted as you make your way to it. The sunset is in full effect now, and the sky is hued in a deep purple. The trees lining the park seem longer, taller, their shadows slowly creeping across the grass. And you're not sure what you plan to, what you're going to find exactly. Ruth, what's your listen? Uh, that is... 80. 80. You hear it about a second and a half before Baxter 
points forwards and whispers over there, immediately reaching down to grab the hilt of the baseball bat that he carries over his shoulder. You can hear the buzzing of flies. The intense hum of insects feasting. Miss Langford's body has been here for more than a day. Decay has already begun. Maggots crawl over the corpse in heaving masses, chewing through her skin, bearing her muscle and bone underneath. Her hair is caked with blood from a gaping head wound. And her sole remaining eye stares blankly into the sky. The other one at this point, nothing more than a bloodied socket filled with maggots and flies and a stream of ants crawling down her cheek into a nearby patch of grass. I would like everybody present to roll a sanity check for me, please. Good, um... That's a fail. That's a fail. And please Baxter roll either. for Baxter as well. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. Um, oh, wow, okay. Baxter rolled a one. Yeah, no, Baxter's... Well, Baxter was, you know, he's been through... He's seen dead bodies before. He's seen them on Beacon Island, and this is still a ghastly sight, but Baxter just breathes out a sigh. A resigned sigh of sadness. He wasn't hoping to find her like this, but he was expecting something nasty. Boothby, you passed? Yes. So for passing, that is a sand loss of 1d3. For failing, that is a sand loss of 1d6. 1d6. I lose five. Oof. So I'm down to 34 total. Yeah. I would like you to go ahead and make an intelligence check for me, Ruth, please. And uh, if you pass it, me. if you pass it, you're going to have temporary insanity. That's right. I'm rolling against 70. Well, you're rolling and against I get a 15. Did you? And so you passed. Yeah. Flying colors. <laughs> So, Boothby, you were waiting for Ruth to do this, and it happens. She immediately begins hyperventilating. <gasps> oh my god, oh my god, she said, oh, oh, her eye, oh, the blood. Come on, I should be able to handle this, I should, come on, I should be able to handle, able to handle this. <laughs> and Boothby, do you attempt to help Ruth compose herself in any way? Boothby removes one of his gloves and firmly slaps Ruth across the face. Uh, she's just stunned for a moment. And then she regains her senses a bit. Then she slaps him back. See, all better. She's the just heart sort of fuming. <laughs> the heart still beating. She peers down at the corpse at her feet, and in spite of herself, opens her mouth and gasps. 
I'd like you to roll a power check for me, please, Ruth. Fuck's sake. Uh, passes by one. Passes by one. For a brief moment, perhaps no more than a slither of a second. It's not Miss Langdon's face staring back at you. It's your own. Shake your head. And Miss Langdon's back. The single remaining guy staring blankly at you. Unknowing. There's blood all over her clothes. Her hair is caked in it. There's obviously signs of a struggle. Patches of grass around her flattened, splatters of blood on the ground. Her purse is missing, but of course you know where that is. Boothby. Seems that Ruth is temporarily indisposed of at the moment. And so you're the only one who notices when Baxter peers down at the corpse and grimly points at the woman's hand. There's a glint of gold in her tightly clenched fist. You're going to do it or should I? Says Baxter. Boothby definitely doesn't seem too happy, but kind of has a... He wants to not look weak, especially at this moment, so he grimaces and says that he's going to do it. Gritting your teeth, you kneel down over Miss Langdon and pry open her stiff fingers, each of them clicking. As you pry it open, behind you, Baxter watches morbid curiosity on his face while Ruth just stands... Silent. In the woman's hands, you find a blood-stained gold earring, large and heavy. It seems like a masculine design, and neither of Miss Langford's ears is pierced. In addition to the earring, screwed up, wedged between two of her knuckles, is a blood-spattered mud-soaked scrap of orange paper. Something she snatched from her attacker. I'm going to bring it up in our bare rodeo as you unfurl it and gesture for Baxter to come over and take a look. It's a deer tag. A hunting license. The owner of the tag has signed it and filled in their address. It reads 53 River Street, Arkham, Massachusetts. Hunting license number 299178322. And now you know where the kidnappers took the child. 
We'll end the session there. Well done, guys. We're very good detectives. Yeah. So. So far. Yeah. Late in the day, the sun slowly sets, and Arkham, already sleepy, suddenly turns silent and empty as the residents scurry indoors like cockroaches fleeing the moonlight. You all meet up later at the Miskatonic Hotel. Fill each other in on what you've found. And do you reveal what you've found to Mr. Anderson? I don't think we should yet. I think we should get a little bit more information in case he decides to, like, vigilante justice his way to something. Yeah. They're making progress, right? He says. He looks over at Lord Smythe. They're making progress. I Surely they found something. Ah, I won't worry my head about it. Yeah, you're muted, Demi. <laughs> I won't worry my head about it, he says. They are making progress indeed. Yeah, by making better progress than I'd hoped. No, I'm I shan't. Rather yep. glad to have them on this case. What's your assessment so far, my old friend? My assessment is that uh, there's up for your boy yet. <laughs> Alfredo doesn't think so. He's just in the corner muttering to himself, "We're gonna need a pillowcase for the remains." Luckily, Anderson doesn't hear it. Well, spare me the details. I'm sure you know what you're doing. Feel free to make yourselves comfortable in the suite for tonight. And get back at it first thing in the morning. Time is of the essence. But you seem to have found something. And so as I go to sleep tonight, I hold a little bit of hope in my heart. Carter is out there. And you're gonna find him. You're going to bring him back. Okay. So. Anyone who spent luck? Recovers 1d6 luck. Otherwise, leave your stats and skills as they are. Because this was merely the first day of the investigation. And when you awaken the next morning, next session, you will continue. You've got several leads to follow. You've got the location of the kidnapper's hideout. You've also got the curious story of Daniel Ames at Arkham Institute. And here is when the gloves come off. Mm. Kidnappers are not people to be messed with, and you've already seen enough that when you gather before you retire this night, fill each other in on what you've found, it's quite clear 
this is not just a case of a simple kidnapping. Something horrific is at work under the surface. Something that just may be related to the terrors you faced on Beacon Island.